looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 470. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going back into the world of Westerns, exploring the life and the movies of the great outlaw, Jesse James. And if you've heard our previous episodes on Billy the Kid or Wyatt Earp, you'll be familiar with this man. But David Lambert, erotic artist and mortician slash like illustrator of the dead i don't know what your official title should be not a mortician uh, yeah but you're one of the most unusual careers i can think of but you also happen to be an expert and just a total fanatic for all things related to the wild west so david lambert welcome back to wrong reel thank you i am glad to be back so when someone says what do you do what do you describe first and foremost because your work just absolutely I've, n- I've never met anybody quite like you who does what you do. Uh, yeah, in terms of my work for the coroner? Exactly. Oh, yeah. So basically, um, if, if somebody dies uh, and they don't have any kind of fingerprints or dental records on file, um, I will do a uh, composite sketch of the person that they will then uh, put on their website and other places um, so that people could potentially identify the person. Um, obviously they can't put pictures of dead people just on their site. Um, uh, and beyond that, some of them are just skulls. Some of them are completely unrecognizable as people. Sometimes I only get descriptions. So, um, uh, yeah, it's essentially, essentially like that. So a lot of it is a lot of it's cases from way back in the seventies. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's just essentially unidentified victims um, uh, for, and I do that for the, for the, uh, county coroner of the sheriff's department. Gotcha. Now how, uh, on the total flip side, cause I feel like you're all about drawing both death and life. How is the wonderful world of erotic art going for you these days? Uh, uh, you know, same as always. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm still churning out 
churning out the work. So, uh, you know, people seem seem to like it. <laughs> I love it. Every time I log into Facebook, it's like, wow, all right, that's cool. You just, you just made my day a little, a little more, uh, a little more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. They, if you, if you, uh, most people follow me on uh, through Instagram, but the um, the thing that you'll get uh, if you if you follow me on Facebook is that you will get uh, on those pictures you'll get uh, comments from my mother and my grandmother <laughs> and my and my aunts. So <laughs> if you want their commentary on the uh, on my nude figure work. Uh, you know, then you can add me on Facebook. But it's all it's, very uh, tastefully done. So I imagine your mother and your grandmother are very proud when they see it. It's not like you're going to work for like, you know, uh, like Pornhub or something like that. It, it's, uh, how can I, it's like, it's a, like a, a, a wonderful mix of fantasy and figure work and it's like just beautiful illustrations. So the the girls might be, you know, as God made them, buck-ass naked, but it's not like you're trying to, uh, you know, create spank material or something like that. So I think it's wildly appropriate for your mother and your grandmother to be offering as much support as they can. <laughs> yes, they're very supportive. So it's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, let's switch gears then. So today we have a giant topic at hand. We have the, the story of Jesse James, and I've been watching a lot of movies about this man for the last couple of weeks, and I think I probably know less about him now than I did at the beginning because there's so much myth and legend and just bad history in a lot of these movies, but I've had a hell of a lot of fun along the way. But obviously with all things related to the Wild West, trying to separate the myth from the fact, it can be a little blurry. So... From your point of view, give us the story of Jesse James before we start sinking our teeth into some of these amazing movies. Uh, yeah, you know, it is it is one of those things that uh, it's difficult to separate the reality um, from the, the the myth because immediately, as Jesse James was you know doing all of his robberies and stuff, he was already being mythologized by a newspaper man named John Newman Edwards, who was a um, you know Confederate sympathizer. And he's really the person that started the whole concept of Jesse James being uh, this Robin Hood for the, you know, the poor Southerner. Um, so immediately during Jesse James' life, he, he had already been mythologized. Um, what we know is he was born in 1847 in uh, Clay County, Missouri. Um, his, uh, his father went out to... Um, Went out to, I believe, California to prospect, and uh, and I think he died out there. So he died when um, Jesse James was was I think about three years old, um, and uh, any anyway, eventually uh, the Civil War breaks out, um, and uh, uh, Jesse James's older brother Frank uh, he uh, he joins the Confederacy, fights in a few battles. Uh, comes back to the to the family farm because he fell ill, and uh, at this time, there were um, beyond just you know like the uh, the actual federal you know um, forces of the the Union or the Confederacy. Um, you had these uh, guerrilla bands on both sides. So uh, the pro Union people were uh, known as Jayhawkers, and then the um, the uh, pro South. Or pro-Confederacy people uh, uh, were known as uh, the Bushwhackers. So, um, so a group of these uh, because I, Missouri, correct me if I'm wrong, Missouri they they were technically a neutral state. They never kind of 
I mean, they sent an equal number of people to either side, but they never officially kind of openly declared for either the Union or the Confederacy, correct? I believe so, yeah. So so you could imagine the tensions be, yeah. <laughs> you know. If like half your point, state point is, point. yeah, I mean, people yeah. talk about like Twitter battles today. Like, oh, imagine if half your state is fighting for one side and half is for the other. Guess what? Going into town to buy groceries gets a little awkward. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, <laughs> so, um uh, so uh, some Union forces uh, uh, come to the James Farm looking for Frank James. Um, they um, they take uh, uh, Jesse's stepfather and uh, they uh, they hang him. Now they don't they don't hang him to death, but they hang him in order to torture him to reveal where Frank was hiding. Um, and then they also beat uh, Jesse. So you know, not long after that. Uh, Frank and Jesse um, join up with the Bushwhackers. Um, so uh, this was, uh, I think Jesse James was about 16 when he joined the Bushwhackers. And the Bushwhackers, like I said, they were Confederate guerrillas. They were all usually pretty young. Um, they were led by a man named uh, William Quantrell, who was a um, school teacher uh, who um, became... A kind of a bandit, uh, a bandit, and then um, you know led these guerrilla forces. Um, they were specific, specifically under a guy named Bloody Bill Anderson, who was a crazy guy who would foam at the mouth when he would ride into battle with you know two guns blazing, <laughs> and uh, and he would uh, take scalps and all these things and just really, really, uh, really hideous stuff. Um, and uh, during this time, uh, Jesse. Uh, participates in the Centralia Massacre. Um, of, uh, some of these Confederate guerrillas uh, stopped a uh, uh, Union troop, took them hostage, and executed them. And it was about, a, I think, 100 guys um, were killed. And I believe Jesse James was one of the people that was executing them. So even as a teenager, he's already start- <laughs> he's, he's, he's already getting really well-versed in Yeah, I mean, as a guerrilla life. force, they weren't necessarily yeah. that keen on following the strict letter of the law when it comes to prisoners of war, etc. No, they, they, they took scalps and mutilated bodies and did all that. But uh, uh, they end up sacking Lawrence, Lawrence Kansas, and, um, and killing every, every uh, basically every able-bodied man. So every man and boy... Um, they murder, and that's like that was about upwards of two hundred people. I think died in the uh, Lawrence, Kansas massacre. So uh, uh, I don't think Jesse James was involved in that, but Frank James for sure was. Um, anyway, Bloody Bill Anderson, he gets killed. They cut off his head. The Union cuts his head off and parades it around different towns and stuff. Um, and you know they lose the war, uh, but uh, right after the right after the war. Um, uh, there was a guy named uh, Archie Clements, and uh, he was he was one of the uh, bushwhacker leaders. Uh, so he starts uh, robbing banks, starts you know pulling all these different crimes and stuff. He starts a gang, uh, and the James boys join up with him, and then the Youngers. So Cole Younger was also a Confederate guerrilla, and him and his brothers they join up. Uh, Archie Clements ends up getting killed, and then the James the James gang they start robbing banks, they start robbing uh, trains, they start robbing trains in eighteen seventy three, I believe. 
uh, uh, they rob stagecoaches. At one point, they tried to rob a train by putting a putting a log on the uh, like they tried to derail the train by putting a log on the tracks, and so the train derails and yeah, killed a bunch of people. So after that, after that, they stopped doing that because that was bad PR, uh, and PR was very important to them. So like I said before, they had this newspaper man who was who was basically. Um, uh, Saying that Jesse James was this Robin Hood character who, who you know, stole from the rich, gave to the poor Southerners, and all that—that that is definitely not the case. They didn't really gave care. To the poor Southerners, if you were part of his immediate gang, <laughs> and, and yes, was yeah. people working with him, that, that, that's about as far as his Robin Hood qualities went. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, the thing is, he didn't. They—they uh, they would oftentimes hit banks because they would hear that some Union general had money there, or this or that. So sometimes it had a political purpose, but but overall not really. Um, and uh, uh, they 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 wouldn't hesitate to rob from Southerners either. So it wasn't really. Uh, and the thing is that you have to understand too is that banks were not insured at this time. So if somebody robbed takes your money from a bank, you you just don't get your money back. So <laughs> you know. Uh, so they were they weren't just hurting the banks or anything like that. They were literally just hurt the hurting the local population. So um and so there and there's always a lot of collateral damage, uh you know, uh, people people men, women, children getting getting hurt, getting killed and stuff, you know, by stray bullets or so you know, not they're not they're not the best people in the world. Um but anyway, so they continue like this and the Pinkertons are, are, are the Pinkerton was the the um, railroad detective agency, and so the Pinkertons uh, start going after them. So at one point they go to the James farm, uh, uh, thinking that they're hiding out there. Um, uh, it's their the James's mother um, and their younger brother. Um, uh, they're there, and anyway, the Pinkertons throw this um, incendiary device that's supposed to smoke them out um they believe someone like pushed it into the fireplace like swept it into the fireplace uh and anyway the gases and everything basically turned it into a bomb so it it ends up exploding it ends up um blowing off the arm of the james boy's mother um and killing their younger brother so after that the, symp- the sympathy for Jesse James and the James Younger gang uh, went up even more. So now people are really on their side. Uh, so they were able to hide out and they were able to continue for, you know, over a decade uh, with this, you know, lifestyle. Um, like essentially like the war, like basically never ended for them. Like the, 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 the war might've been over but like a, a decade prior, but they kind of almost like in a weird way, were kind of fighting their, in, in their own way, continuing to fight the war as they saw fit. Yeah, they just kept going, and I mean, I just think they—I mean, they lived pretty well. Jesse James had a like he had a racehorse he loved, and and all. so so I think it was kind of a thing that they didn't really know. They didn't know what else to do, and they didn't want to do anything else. Uh, there's a lot of bushwhackers and Confederates that didn't do this type of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> After the war, so this is just something that uh, definitely the war warped warped them. Um, and they had a lot of hatred and, and, and all that, but they were also, you know, they were also enjoying themselves. So, um, but the, the downfall of the James Younger gang happens when they decide to rob a bank in, uh, 
uh, Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, they, uh, they get there and I think that what happened is they go to Minnesota and, you know, this sort of that thing, like that idea of Minnesota nice, you know, everyone, they're so nice to you and everything. And uh, so I, I think that they kind of like, this is going to be easy. This is going to be a push, you know. They didn't put realize their, how tough those square push. heads could be. Exactly. <laughs> so, so what they end up doing is they end up getting drunk beforehand. Um, now, what they would usually do in a, in a town is they would have – they would have guys outside riding up and down the streets, firing their guns in the air, saying, we've got 40 men coming, stay off the streets, uh, while the other guys went into the bank and robbed it. Well, they uh, they, they tried that, but uh, they were drunk. The people in the bank were like they could smell liquor on their breath, and they just didn't really take them seriously. So um, the bank uh, manager, uh, whose name was Haywood, last name was Haywood, um, he tells them uh, it's a time lock. We've got we've got all the money in a time lock, and um, so they're like, "Oh, like, what are we gonna do?" So they just kind of take what take what they can from the cash registers. So the bank had fifteen thousand dollars in it. They only took twenty six dollars and seventy cents. <laughs> <laughs> not 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 a good score. And the 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 the, the other thing is, it was not actually on a time lock. If they would have just tried to open the safe they would have they would have been able to <laughs> they just believed the guy uh so he was just bullshitting because he just thought they were dumb drunks um anyway they end up killing haywood so unfortunately uh but uh while this is happening you know all, all, all these people in town they go to the hardware store they start passing out rifles and they just start shooting the james younger gang to pieces uh the thing is um, you know, they might go like the James gang might go rob some poor Southerner, like Southern bank or whatever. And they, people didn't really have a lot of money, but the, these Norwegians and stuff, they had a ton of money in this bank. And so they weren't going to let, they, they were not going to let anyone take it. So, so they shot the James gang to pieces. Um, and like Cole Younger got shot 11 times specifically in that incident. Yes, and, and, and he got somehow shot <laughs> like, bringing his lifetime total to twenty six apparently, but he he lived. He lived for like a few more decades. <laughs> yeah, he got shot in the face with with birdshot too, and uh, he he went back for his brother, and that's one of the reasons why he got shot up so many times. Cole Younger is really uh, a really interesting character and uh, a bad dude, but much more admirable uh, than than Jesse, to be honest. Uh, after he'd been shot uh, 11 times, he did actually, uh, and he got captured, he did actually bow to some ladies <laughs> on his on his way to jail. So he had so, a, a sense of theatricality as well. Yes, definitely. And and the thing about Cole Younger is that he, his father was a unionist, but for whatever reason, some union soldiers uh, shot his father dead. So that's what made him um, join up with the with the Bushwhackers. Um so anyway, the James, the James Younger gang kind of falls apart at, at that point. All the Youngers um, uh, are captured. Uh, Jesse and Frank are able to escape. But after that, things were never really the same. Um, Jesse kind of had to bring in different people that weren't necessarily reliable. He had a reward on his head. He starts getting paranoid. He starts killing members of his own gang because he thinks they're going to try to turn him in. Um and then so eventually um, uh, Robert Ford and Charlie Ford 
they join the gang and um, what ends up happening and you know you'll see it in some of the films is um, through a dis- th- through a dispute Bob Ford ends up killing um, the cousin of Jesse James Wood Height uh, and they they basically cover it up. So uh, after that, they're worried that Jesse is going to go after them and kill them. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, there was a reward on Jesse's head. So Bob Ford ends up shooting Jesse in the back. Um, and, uh, you know, he he kind of lives his, his own life. He goes on stage, reenacts it, um, becomes the most hated man in America. Uh, and then uh, Frank, after this, Frank James gives himself up. Frank James gets acquitted. Um, and then, uh, so then Robert Ford, he goes to Colorado and 10 years after Jesse's death, uh, he's, he's shot in the neck, uh, with a shotgun by a man named Ed O'Kelly, who didn't, no one really knows what relationship he even had to, uh, Robert Ford, but he didn't know Jesse James, <laughs> but he ends up getting, he ends up getting, um, uh, um, pardoned for murder, and Ed O'Kelly, and it was a he was a nut on its on his own. Uh, but, <laughs> but he ends up getting killed by a policeman later and stuff. So you know, a lot of people getting killed. Yeah, uh, none of these. So, like the life expectancy is like thirty for for all these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so then you know, eventually, uh, uh, Frank James goes. He starts sell. He sells. He sells women's shoes. He uh, acts as a ticket terror uh, uh, at a at a carnival, um, and then once Cole Younger gets out of jail, him and Cole Younger go go around um, uh, doing a kind of Wild West show, telling people you know don't engage in criminal activity and and all that. So um, uh, so yeah, I mean that's ba- that's that's the basics. I, I think. I think that about covers yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that, that that definitely gives us all the major characters that we're going to be tackling in these movies. And these movies, I mean, they tackle some of these movies. Like focus specifically on one incident. Some movies try to give the the overview. Some movies are focused on the early days. Some movies are focused on the very end. So we're going to be able to kind of, uh, I guess, reassess and reexamine all these chapters again and again and again. And some of these movies do it really fucking well. But we're going to try our best to at least give like a, a shout out to as many movies as possible on this topic. Well, let's start with the, at the very beginning. How the people held their breath when they heard of Jesse's death. Wondered how he came to die. For the big reward, little Robert Ford got Jesse James on the slide. It was Robert Ford, that pretty little coward. I wonder how he does feel. We have this really unusual scenario where we have this flick called Jesse James Under the Black Flag, which is two silent movies that were released back-to-back in 1921 that were then combined and given voiceover narration in 1930, and that's the version you sent me. And I, 
I didn't, I didn't even look any further to see if I could find just the pure silent versions, but this is just an absolutely wild, just little time capsule from a bygone era starring none other than Jesse James Jr. himself. So give us the lowdown on the goals and the final product of this particular piece of cinema. You know, I don't really, I don't know a whole lot about this one. I know there were, there were, uh, a, a few short silent films, I think in 1908. Um, I don't know the history of this one just beyond the, that Jesse James' son uh, uh, plays him in it and uh, and um, <laughs> is woefully miscast because he because there's a section of it where it 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 because under the black flag the black flag was what the uh, Quantrill's Raiders uh, had. They called themselves that they were under the they were black flagging it. Um, so it, it touches upon it touches upon his time in uh, as a bushwhacker. Um, so you've got a middle aged, over you know, chubby Jesse James Jr. playing a sixteen year old Jesse yeah. James. <laughs> um, and you know, they're they're worth seeing just because um, just for historical significance. There's not much artistry there. Yeah, it's uh, like a historical curiosity, and obviously pretty healthy dose of propaganda as well where if you want to buy into the myth of Jesse James as Robin Hood obviously this movie's like single goal was to try and reinforce that interpretation yeah exactly so um, yeah it hits upon uh, certain events um, there's like a there's there's a rodeo in one part which is strange and then there's a subplot with some Indians that doesn't really <laughs> you know doesn't really have anything to do with any 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 his history um, they do have the Northfield raid in it um, which is interesting to see and it, and it's also fascinating to watch um, base Jesse James jr basically reenacting the murder of Jesse James <laughs> like it's it's so strange so morbid so and it's interesting uh, having the, the the director the writer and director of the movie Franklin B Coates also is a character in the movie and he is like playing himself in it so yeah they're they're not trying to dis I mean they're not trying to disguise their intentions like here we are we're going to tell the yeah. story as we see it so at least they're wearing their bias on their sleeve yeah yeah that's the other thing about it too huh um i i've, I've been cramming all these movies in so they're just they're all like i'm forgetting so much about it but there's also just these weird, yeah, modern like, uh, like a modern section in it, right? And it, and it's just a, uh, I don't know what, yeah, it's it, it's weird. Uh, <laughs> so I'm looking at Franklin B. Coach right here, and he had a career as an actor initially. He started appearing some shorts in the teens, but he appeared in The Revenge of Tarzan in 1920, which is probably his most noteworthy credit. But after he makes these, because uh, the, as silent movies, they're called Jesse James Under the Black Black Flag, and then Jesse James as the Outlaw. And so if you want to hunt, if you're a silent film buff, I won't make any claims to the artistry of these, but if you're interested in the history of silent movies, I think they're worth a look just because not every time you watch a silent movie do you, does it need to be a towering masterpiece like Murnau's Sunrise. Like there's there's a hell of a lot of other stuff to uh, to sink your teeth into as well. Yeah, and there's there's a there's sort of a, a tradition in like the early days of silent film where real outlaws would play themselves in movies, um, and and then oftentimes they'd play themselves in a movie and then they'd go back to robbing. <laughs> banks and stuff and get <laughs> nice. killed and, but um one of the famous ones is um uh actually relatives of the james boys about a decade later the daltons 
um, they uh, they tried to rob two banks at the same time, uh, <laughs> uh, the Dalton gang, and they got shot to pieces like in a repeat of the Northfield um, raid. Uh, anyway, uh, Grat Dalton he ends up um, uh, playing himself in some movies, so he's once again a, a, a you know a chubby middle aged guy playing the teenage <laughs> the teenage version of the character. But um, Ron Hansen, who wrote the novel The Assassination of Jesse James, his first book was about the Daltons. It's called Desperados, and gotcha. I highly recommend that one. It's uh, it's it's worth checking out, but. But uh, I'm I'm I don't know if that one survives the 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 one the, the ones that Dalt that uh, Grat Dalton were in. But um, but yeah, there there was sort of a um, you know it's a it was like a gimmick you know essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny how like we think of the Wild West as basically like the Dark Ages, but for people making silent movies, it was relative like recent history. It'd be like us making movies about like the 1970s right now. And so it just wasn't that unusual for these guys to stick around and either appear or act as technical consultants. And yeah, it was it was like still living breathing history for them in so many ways. But what's interesting is how in the 1930s the western was a, not a dead genre. I mean, there were plenty of like one-reelers and two-reelers, and we've talked about a few of them on episodes in the past, but it was not a giant phenomenon until 1939 when you have Stagecoach, which obviously was a runaway success, but the fourth highest grossing movie in 1939 is Jesse James. And I, I have some sentimental love for this one because it's directed by one of the few Virginians ever to make a name for himself as a filmmaker, Henry King. So... If people have not seen Jesse James from 1939, what is going down in this flick? Law and order had not yet come to Missouri. This gateway to the West was infested with a mixture of drifters, pioneers, gamblers, and builders. And the ever-encroaching railroad was cutting a wide swath through the fertile land taken from the farmers. It was this uncertain and lawless age that gave to the world for good or ill, its most famous outlaw, Jesse James. You're making a mistake, Jesse. A big mistake. Please, Jesse. I'm sorry, Zeeb. When anybody does anything to me, I, I've just got to do something to them. I can't help it. As long as I live, I'm going to hate the railroads. Right or wrong, law or no law, I'm going to try to make it sorry for what it done to me. What is this, a game? Grown men playing on the floor like children. Ain't it the truth? They wouldn't have it any other way. You look like a man that's got good sense. Just name it, friend, and I'll do it. All you got to do is to throw that door open when I say the word and then step back. And so, bowing vengeance for the trickery of the authorities after he had peacefully surrendered, Jesse James set forth on the most amazing criminal career of all time. Wholesale holdups of banks, trains, even entire towns made his name the most awesome in America, the most feared in a fearless West. Filmed in technicolor, in actual locales of breathtaking beauty, the screen brings to life the stirring epic of a lawless era, Jesse James. Darrell F. Zanuck's production with Tyrone Power, Henry Fonda, Nancy Kelly, Randolph Scott, 
any cast of thousands. Uh, yeah, this one is, this is really the one that starts the trajectory of what almost every Jesse James movie, uh, is going to be for a long time. Um, it's, you know, it's made during the depression. The guy who wrote it, uh, he also wrote the adaptation of Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, not only Johnson, he's a great writer. Yes. And, uh, so it's definitely propaganda and it's kind of brilliant the way that they do it. So there's no, uh, from what I can recall, there's little to no reference, uh, in regards to the civil war, to the bushwhackers. Um, I don't even think the youngers are in this movie. They, as part of the gang. Um, yeah, it's more almost like during like the era of reconstruction, they're kind of being pushed off their land and like being portrayed as, uh, victims. Yeah, that yeah, that is that's true. But what's interesting is it's not even um, they're not even doing it in a way that it's like oh these you know the 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 Yankees are coming in and and is screwing it up. That's true. It's more like progress is coming its way. Like trains are coming and they're and they're basically yeah. abusing people and buying their land for far less than it's worth, or or just getting yeah. pushed off. Exactly. So you have so you have uh, the railroad. As the you know the one and that becomes that becomes a huge thing in in so many westerns the railroads coming and pushing us off the land and everything and it's so there's there's a brilliance there because they they've essentially reverse engineered um, uh, Jesse James robbing the, the railroads you know what I mean like the railroad comes and the Pinkertons come in and all this in history um, you know to uh, they go after Jesse James because he's robbing trains, but this movie reverse engineers it to he's robbing trains because the you know because the railroads trying to kick him off their land and all that. So uh, and then you know they blow up his mom. So instead of her just losing her arm, she just gets killed and uh, and then they and then they go uh, you know um, to get back at uh, Brian Donlevy, who you know he, whenever he's in a western, I, I know it's probably going to be good. He's usually going to be the bad guy. <laughs> well, also, this movie's got some massive star power. You've got Tyrone Power and Henry Fonda as Jesse and Frank James, and they just have this awesome, like, kind of like buddy movie chemistry going. But you've also got the f- future of Western Hall of Famer Randolph Scott in there as Will Wright. And for people who don't know, Randolph Scott was also another Virginian. He, he grew up near Orange, Virginia, which is uh, where my boarding school was, <clears throat> which is famous for being like horse country. There's just farms and plantations like as, as far as the eye can see around there. And you really see his horsemanship on display in this. There are plenty of actors who can get up and uh, up and down from a horse. But when Randolph Scott gets up and down from a horse, it's like a ballet dancer gracefully, almost like, like Sir Galahad stepping down from a horse. Like, God damn, this guy really knows how to fucking ride. So I really love seeing all three of these guys as like young, young, virile studs throwing down and doing their thing. And obviously Henry yeah. Fonda was not yet, you know, the great Henry Fonda that we see. And my, I feel like the war shaped Henry Fonda's on-screen persona in a lot of ways uh, and a lot of much like how it did with james stewart but still fucking henry fonda and he's a total badass oh yeah he's great so it's such a like you know that just a laid back sort of uh um performance that he gives yeah he's 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 really cool in it um 
So yeah, it's it's definitely worth seeing just to see, um, uh, just to see how this informs every Jesse James movie and the public perception of Jesse James and and, and um, so you're gonna you'll, you're gonna be hard pressed to find um, uh, a, a Jesse James movie after this that doesn't like. Uh, position the railroad as these guys that are you know as his as his motivation absolutely but but other than that it's it's you know it's very enjoyable i love 30s westerns it's technicolor Uh, too i mean people talk about old westerns and they always think of like westerns as being these like sepia toned movies but in the 30s 40s and 50s you had these insanely bright colors in a lot of them that just make them so gorgeous from the posters the hand-drawn illustrations to the technicolor films they just are so eye-popping to look at and also, this movie's got probably the most reckless, unethical, but exciting, dangerous, like, horse stunts <laughs> ever recorded on film at the end. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I believe it's the first Western that was shot in three-strip Technicolor. Um, at least that's what I read. But, uh, uh, and yeah, the, the terrible horse falls that, um, that basically started, um, uh, you know, it started the whole thing about, about, about you know, uh, animal cruelty on sets and everything like that. Well, what's crazy is like this, the stunt is so balls out and so bananas that they just reuse the scene in its entirety 20 years later in the Nicholas Ray movie. It's like they didn't even bother to try to like disguise it. It's like, nope, we're just going to cut and paste the stunt because it's just you cannot po- – I mean, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, at one point uh, Frank and Jesse are being pursued and they basically ride off a cliff – down into the water below and it, the way the shot is done it almost looks like the horses like come down butt first off a sliding board and then just go like ass over teacup somersaulting down into the water but when you want like you can't believe you're seeing what you're seeing like caught on camera it's just it's, it's truly a stunt from a bygone era and obviously you shouldn't abuse and cripple and kill and maim animals on camera however when you see it, it's very hard not to have your jaw just hit the floor just at the audacity of the stunt. Yeah, and, and the thing is too, uh, uh, it's it's the it's two horses, but in reality, it was the same stunt from a different angle. That's yep. what I've read. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's but, two different uh, ca- two different camera setups. You can tell because one's pretty close, or one's relatively tight, and one's pretty far back. But you, if you're looking closely, you can tell they just basically reusing the same shot. Yeah, and so uh, the the horse ended up dying. And so, yeah, just a terrible, terrible thing. Although I've read that um, in, I think, one of Daryl Zanuck's uh, bi- biographies or something, they said that the horse didn't actually die he, or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, I read conflicting uh, reports as well. And once again, it's like it's hard enough to keep things straight when it comes to uh, the Wild West. But even with movie history, sometimes it's hard to keep things straight. But I did read conflicting reports. But the reality is that starting from that point on, the Humane Society of America introduced new strict standards about what you could do to animals on set. And it, I mean, it's, I remember like when I was reading about with the making of a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid in the 60s, they had to go down to Mexico just for one shot because they wanted a bull to charge Paul Newman. And the only way they could figure out to make it happen on like on cue was by spraying this kind of mild acid on his testicles. And that's totally oh, frowned upon oh, yeah. in America. So they went down to Mexico where it was totally, totally fine. They sprayed the acid <laughs> on his balls and the, and the bull charged Paul Newman and they got their shot. Yeah, you know, as, uh, um, as uh, fans of Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid, yeah, go to Mexico and <laughs> you, can, you can spray gasoline in the eyes of chickens and blow their heads off and all that. 
Yeah, um. <laughs> it's, it's still the Wild Wild West down there. But man, I, yeah, because I, I had never seen this Henry King movie prior to preparing for this, and so it was definitely a, a fun discovery. Just because, once again, Henry King, he's not up there with like Frank Capra and George Cukor and Alfred Hitchcock and all those legends from the 30s and 40s. So I think he justifiably has been overshadowed by a lot of those guys. But Henry King does have a cool filmography, and he worked his ass off, made tons of fucking movies. Like, uh, I guess maybe one of his uh, his big ones that people still stick around for is, uh, what's that Gregory Peck? Was it called The Gunfighter from like 1950? Yeah. The Gunfighter yeah, at 12 O'Clock High yeah. and Prince of Foxes, people still... So I think like late, late 40s, early 50s, he kind of really hit a stride but once again they're just so few great directors from uh, virginia i had to i had to shine a light on them over the course of this episode yeah the gunfighter is from the same writer uh, as this movie none only is that how you say uh, it i believe so yeah <laughs> uh um yeah it has the same writer and then also uh the bravados and that's another henry king gregory peck movie with the with the same writer and that one's good. Have you seen The Bravados? I have not seen The Bravados. Oh, you have to see it. It's Gregory Peck getting revenge uh, on these guys that have, I think, raped and killed his wife or whatever. Gotcha. Uh, Henry Silva. Yeah, I'm looking at 1958. Looks cool. Yeah, Henry Silva is in it. Um, Curly Joe from The Three Stooges is in it. He gets shot. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that one is. Uh, oh, Lee Van Cleef's in it. Very cool. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef. Gene Evans. In it. Yeah, great cast. Great cast. It's a, uh, you know, it's like a proto uh, spaghetti Western. So that's, uh, this isn't one of my, uh, I enjoy this movie a lot, but it's, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little surface level. Um, the gunfighter I think is a better, um, Western from Henry King and the bravados. I think, I think he definitely got better. They're more complex, complicated movies. This one, this one's pretty simple. It has some of Jesse kind of getting out of control uh, and yeah, kind of going have- to the dark side and also t- yeah. tackles a little bit this idea of amnesty being offered. What can you tell us about the periods where certain people who had been not necessarily southern soldiers, like it hadn't been part of the Confederate Army, but they had been bushwhackers, would give people the, like the lay of the land in terms of um, in order to try to establish a peace after the war, how some of these outlaws were offered amnesty? Yeah, that that is true. Right. Like right at the beginning during reconstruction though um there was uh especially after lincoln died there was sort of an attitude of you know fuck these guys <laughs> they you know they're they're uh uh they're out they're outlaws they're you know and so uh a lot of times um they uh in during reconstruction they weren't allowed to uh vote they weren't allowed to uh, obviously hold office. They weren't allowed to preach. So if you <laughs> if you if you were a Confederate and you wanted to become a preacher, they wouldn't allow you. So they were they were actually somewhat harsh on them. Or I mean, whatever, depending on your your point of view. But um, it it kind of just made them even more bitter. But eventually, yeah, they would offer amnesty. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you you know you'll see it in. Um, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, they have that thing where they swear to the, uh, they swear to the union, and, then, and they'll get murdered. <laughs> of course, in that movie, they get mowed down, which is ridiculous. But um, so yeah, they would offer amnesty. There, there was eventually uh, an attempt to um, 
sort of reconcile yeah, things. Heal the, heal the wounds. I mean, it's, it's like an entire generation of men was dead. I mean, like for like an entire generation of women couldn't even find like husbands because it's just an entire. It's 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 just when you when both sides of a war from the same country, it's like every man down the country suffers overall, yeah. and it just it took decades for uh, America to kind of get back on his feet. But yeah, it's, I'm in a weird situation when it comes to discussing the Civil War because I grew up in a city that was the capital of the Confederacy. There's, you know, Monument Avenue runs right through the heart of Richmond and you have all these giant larger than life Confederate war monuments. And so when I talk to people from like New York or people from like Los Angeles, it's like they can't even like process the fact that you would come from like a culture like where like these people would be celebrated and like held up like to like an idea like even like my elementary school when you joined you immediately became either a lee or a jackson so anytime there's like sports and gym like all right lee's over here jackson's over here it's just like it's just totally imbued in the culture and so it's very easy for me sometimes to say things about the civil war in a kind of a flippant casual fashion people are like why aren't you expressing more outrage etc and so forth and just one of those things where you can be proud to be a Southerner, while at the same time recognizing slavery was a, an evil, horrible thing. But sometimes people can't quite reconcile that that duality where you can be both proud and ashamed all at once. So if I seem like I don't necessarily express enough faux or mock outrage about certain things, it's just because I'm from Virginia and it's just I, I can't fake it. So that's just how I, I can only speak about it from that perspective. Well, you know, that kind of duality, I mean, that's just America itself, itself, you know? So, so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to, I mean, you have to acknowledge that, uh, that, uh, people can be monsters in one sense and have uh, certain admirable traits in others. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just the total yin and yang, but yeah, it's so funny. Like when people visit Richmond who aren't familiar with it and they see like kids throwing Frisbees at like the feet of these enormous giant statues of Robert E. Lee, they're like, what the fuck? But in yeah. Richmond, it's t- t- totally normal. So yeah, like I'm fascinated by the civil war and it's impossible to grow up in Virginia not because you're surrounded by civil war battlefields all, all around you. But what was fun about preparing for this episode is that we, as Virginians, we tend to be very preoccupied with anything and everything that happened in Virginia. But it's, you know, everything that happened, if you're from St. Louis, I'm sure all these stories about the Bushwhackers and about the, um, about, uh, about the Jayhawkers and everything is equally fascinating. So it was cool for me to kind of broaden my perspective on how different people look at the Civil War from different parts of the country. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the things, too. And and you know it's tro- it's trotted out a lot of uh, the idea that you know most Southerners did not um, did not own slaves. Um, having said that, Jesse James's family did own slaves. They owned six slaves, <laughs> and his family actually trafficked in slave in, in slaving um, uh, even after it was illegal because it was it was illegal to bring new slaves over even before like decades before the Civil War. Um, but people were still doing it, and his family actually was part of the black, <laughs> black market. But they were they were definitely uh, a pro slavery uh, a pro slavery family n- beyond just you know of you know states' rights or whatever. And that's when it's interesting seeing like which filmmakers decide to tear down the myths and which ones prop them up. Like we'll get to it in a bit, but like Samuel Fuller doesn't buy into the mythology of Jesse James at all, and was more than happy to kind of portray him in a much more savage light and it is it's interesting to see to what degree some filmmakers try to 
reconcile uh, like the, the the fact and the fiction, etc. But yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to all that. But before we get to uh, Samuel Fuller, we do have a sequel to Jesse James from none other than Fritz fucking Lang, The Return of Frank yeah. James, 1940, starring uh, Henry Fonda. And it has no relationship with history whatsoever. But for a young, impressionable moviegoer, Walter Hill, it became his, fam- his favorite movie about Jesse James, which eventually would lead to him creating one of the best on this topic, The Long Riders. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun movie. Um, I like the first half a lot better than the second oh, half. Oh, the courtroom drama is of- awful. I, I, yeah, I, the courtroom drama is un, unwatchable, but I do like seeing a young Jean Tierney. It's her, it's her screen debut, and she's just one of the all-time great screen beauties. I like movies like Laura and Leave Her to Heaven. She's absolutely incredible. And there's a one chase scene where um, Henry Fonda's chasing the Ford brothers, and they're riding horses over this like rocky terrain, and it's like. This looks so fucking dangerous. They're like, because there's like oh, no purchase yeah, for the crazy. hooves. It's just like these steep ass cliffs and hills, and they're just riding on horseback. It's like, how are these horses and actors just not dying every goddamn take? But I was really impressed by that one particular chase sequence. Yeah, I, I also love uh, when uh, Charlie Ford falls off <laughs> falls off the cliff. You you put a dummy falling off a cliff in a movie or getting ran over or whatever. I'm going to love it. I love dummies <laughs> getting destroyed in movies, so it's always fun for me. Uh, so, yeah, he slips, and he's very clearly a dummy falling on the rocks. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, I just found the, yeah. uh, the line by Walter Hill about this movie. He says, the historical sense, it was... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me read the full quote. Um, boom, 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 boom. Walter Hill later argued that the best movie that had been made about the younger James brothers prior to this was Return of Frank James, 1940. And then the quote begins, in the historical sense, it was also the least accurate, but it had a real sense of character truth. I don't know if I necessarily see it in that light, but it is interesting... <laughs> I- <laughs> yeah, I, but it is interesting just knowing which movies have a massive impact on these directors uh, later on in life. Yeah, I I don't I wouldn't necessarily agree about character truth, but uh, uh, but yeah, it's fun. I mean, the, it, yeah, it's it's just so off the wall. Like Frank James never killed a man, and it's like what? <laughs> like they literally say that at one point in the movie, and it's like what are you talking about? Um, and then you know after he gets acquitted. He uh, chases Bob Ford out of the out of the courthouse and like kills him like not far off. Oh, that's ridiculous! Yeah, he gets acquitted and immediately just like leaps over like a, a table and starts chasing him out of the room. And I like that scene where they confront each other like when Bob Ford's on stage performing the like I shot Jesse James and um, oh. they end up, like throwing like a lantern up on up like in the rafters. So yeah, this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, it's just uh, totally absurd. But yeah, it's a it's that that. The first half of the movie is a lot of fun. It gets, uh, it's also, you know, there's also just kind of that irony to, you know, touch upon something that's a little, uh, you know, uh, complicated. But the, how, like the, you know, the movie's kind of hinging on the fact that they're going to, they're going to kill, they're going to hang Frank James's uh, kind of servant, black servant guy. (laughs) And it's like, and it's like, oh, the, you know, the, the evil, uh, the evil Yankees are gonna hang the black guy, and these and these poor ex Confederates have to go save him. You know, it's just that's so so absurd. <laughs> So, uh, well, one thing you, know. you and I've talked about a lot of times on these previous Western episodes is this idea of uh, Western kind of family trees and like certain lineages that get passed down from movie to movie. And with this, we have the beginning of this interesting scenario where John Carradine, who plays Robert Ford in two movies, 
We also have his sons appearing in Jesse James movies later on. And it's like, you know, obviously if you're talking about like Harry Carey and Harry Carey Jr., you can like trace these lineages all over. But I always love these bizarre family trees where people who are making Westerns in the 30s and 40s, their kids would go on to make Westerns later on in life. And so we definitely have one of those phenomena at play here in uh, The Return of Frank James. Yeah, and then also uh, Carradine is in uh, the true story of Jesse James. Yeah, as too. a preacher. Yeah, I mean, he he's a, he's got his fingerprints yeah. all over. That. I, I love Robert Carradine. He's such a just a deranged, evil looking dude. Uh, probably my favorite role by him is in Stagecoach, where once again he plays a Virginian. So rah rah Virginia. Don't make me sing the yeah. uh, the UVA theme song. But, uh, <laughs> but he basically. Plays a Doc Holiday surrogate. Exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, the it's like the best non Doc Holiday named character of like version of Doc Holiday we've ever seen on film. to tell you what I think. If someone pays the cost, I'll trade a ballad for a drink. Give him a drink. I just blew into town. I can use a drink, Mister. I'll sing you one everybody likes. song everybody likes. Jesse James was a lad that killed many a man. He robbed the Glendale train. He took from the rich and gave to the poor. He'd a heart and a hand and a brain. Young Jesse had a wife who mourned for his life. Three children, they were brave. But the dirty Howard, what shot Mr. Howard has laid Jesse dead in his grave. Cause it was Robin Ford, the dirty little cat. Anything wrong, mister? I'm Robert Ford. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ford. I didn't know. So everybody likes it, huh? Oh, nobody likes it very much, Mr. Ford. Go on, sing it. Oh, please, Mr. Ford. I want to hear it. Cause it was Robert Ford, the dirty little cow. I can't. Sing it. All right. Well, let's start digging into the work of Samuel Fuller, one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. What I love about doing these topics is how we see just so many great directors are interested in or having a take. So like with this, obviously we get to talk about Walter Hill. We get to talk about Nicholas Ray. We get to talk about Samuel Fuller. We get to talk about a lot of really cool filmmakers. And Samuel Fuller was I mean, a journalist before he was a soldier. And after he came back, he also even dabbled as a novelist before going out to fight in World War II. But he's one of these great, really interesting characters where between his journalism, his career as a soldier, and his career as a filmmaker – he always had a much more, uh, I guess, intense interest in the truth, at least as he saw it, which I think is why he tears down some of the mythology about Jesse James in this, because uh, he has this line that I found where he says um, he didn't view him as a folk hero or someone to be admired. He saw him as a cold-blooded psychopath who shot down women, children, and the elderly, the helpless. He even re- referenced how his gang once stopped a Union hospital train and executed every wounded federal soldier on it. And he said that in, uh, in in Fuller's words, Bob Ford did something that should have been done quite a bit earlier in the life of, J- of Jesse Woodson James. So 
we're kind of getting into different territory here, but it's, once again, it is the directorial debut of one of the most iconoclastic, just interesting voices in American cinema. And we talked about him in our last episode when it came to 40 Guns. So this is the movie that's available on the Criterion channel and Criterion Collection. What are your feelings about I Shot Jesse James? Uh, I'm a big uh, Sam Fuller fan. Um I'm not a big fan of this one. <laughs> it is interesting for the angle that he takes with it. Um, it is his directorial debut, and I think that shows a little bit. Um, the cheapness of it kind of yeah, comes It looks through. a lot more like generic and of its time than other – like Sam Fuller movies have a very distinctive look in general. But this definitely feels like it could have been directed by a lot of people in, in, in the late 40s. I'd seen this one uh, years ago, and – I really disliked it then. I I enjoyed it more this time around, um, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't fully work for me. Um, the cheapness shows through, and uh, you know that's not something that you want to really maybe harp on too much. But you know Jesse James when you go and, when you see his house, the ceiling is like thirty feet high because <laughs> it's clearly on a set, you know, and uh, and it and um, something about the the original um, Jesse James from uh, thirty nine is that it was actually shot in in uh, Missouri, and you can see that. And this it's very clearly um, you know Southern California. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they go, I mean, going back to the cheapness, this movie was shot in ten days, so it's definitely a movie that they were just ripping right through. It is a total B picture, but it also gives us John Ireland. We've talked about many times in the past on this. John Ireland is in a thousand westerns, but he plays Bob Ford here, and this movie is much more about Bob Ford's guilt and conflicted feelings about killing Jesse James, the way people regard him. And the parts of the movie that don't work for me are his strange kind of territorial, almost like like violently possessive, clingy relationship he has with his potential bride to be, and then his ongoing rivalry with his uh, with his friend for her affections. Like that stuff for me has nothing to do with the story of I Shot Jesse James. So I get that they needed to inject like some kind of soap opera romance, but uh, the stuff that I like much much more is seeing him on stage and. Like kind of like racked with guilt and conflicted feelings about how the people regard him now and how at one point he meets a guy doing song requests and he's like, oh, well, I'll play a song that I think you'll, everybody loves this one and starts singing a song about how Bob Ford's a dirty little coward. You know, right? And Bob Ford's like, I'm Bob Ford. And so you start yeah. to see what it was like to be him as the most hated man in America. So that stuff I did, I did enjoy. Yeah, conceptually, it's a great idea. And, uh, and we'll see later that, um, you know, the assassination of Jesse James, uh, both the both the book and the movie, uh, is in many ways a sort of remake of this, uh, but kind of done properly without the melodrama of uh, him being jealous that Ed O'Kelly uh, is stealing his woman, and they and he turns Ed O'Kelly into a hero, and Ed O'Kelly was a nut, an insane person, um, and. Uh, so, yeah, it is a fascinating idea um, that you focus on Bob Ford. And I mean, and that's, you know, that's where that's where like the Sam Fuller that we know like shows through in the movie. Um, but but yeah, it just doesn't really quite work. And, and it's really mostly to do with the, the romance and giving Bob Ford's motivation 
uh, to kill Jesse James because he wants to romance this girl and you know have money to you to do it to get and, married. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an interesting, I guess, um, homoerotic subtext. You know what I mean? Because it it ends with him saying, "I loved him." And Sam Fuller has a really insane quote about Jesse James. I don't know if you've ever read it, but he said something to the effect of, uh, he goes, uh, the real Jesse James, he was, he was bisexual. He masqueraded as a girl when he, robbed, when he would rob trains to trick people. He was a low-down thief and a pervert. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's like... It's strong words from Mr. Fuller. Yeah, and it's like, well... <laughs> I've never heard anything about <laughs> robbing people in a dress. <laughs> Cole Younger, and during the Civil War, would uh, dress like a woman and get like intelligence as a spy. Um, but uh, but Jesse James himself robbing trains in a dress and everything. I mean, I want to see that movie, but <laughs> yeah, I want to see Sam Fuller direct that I don't, movie. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what what books he was reading, but. Um, yeah, that, that, that's that's intense. Well, another question I have for you about this: I read somewhere it claims that this is the movie that introduces the idea that somebody with a reputation is constantly finding themselves being challenged by younger opponents who are trying to build a name off of them. And I just had a hard time buying that because it seems like such a like a almost like a central conceit to the whole Western genre: this idea that if you're a badass, you constantly have people coming after you. Whether like going back to the days of like Wild Bill Hickok, etc. But we do see that here where a kid is basically opening up with a rifle on Bob Ford as he comes out of a saloon, and then he gets upset when he runs out of ammunition and wants to have mercy. Do you, is there any credence to that, um, to that idea that this movie kind of helps introduce that concept in film? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'd, have to really, I'd have to really think about that. I, I read the same thing, and I would really have to think about that. I mean, if, if that is the case... Um, it's pretty interesting because Henry King kind of ends up making the ultimate version of that with the movie The Gunfighter. Um, so uh, it always reminds me of Blazing I, Saddles I, I, I when uh, Gene Wilder's telling that story about the little kid. He's like, "Reach for it, Mister," and he's like, "Son of a bitch, shot me in the ass." <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the the guy playing the kid though, he later had a career uh, um, in um, some spaghetti westerns. He was in Doc. Okay, because uh, it was shot in Almeria, Spain. I guess he went to Spain and had a career in spaghetti westerns. I've seen him in stuff like Django Kill. He's got that crazy, insane-looking face with yep. the teeth and everything. And I was like, "Is that that guy?" I had to look it up, and I guess that that was the case. But uh, it's it's worth seeing. A lot of the scenes that are in this movie do get repeated in uh, the assassination of Jesse James. The scene where Jesse James is, you know, bathing, and there's sort of the uh, that that you know line where he's like. What does he? What does he say? Like, like he's like, like there, there's my back, and like he's basically like asking him yeah, to, like, to wash his back for him. But it's almost like he's inviting yeah. him to kill him. Like he recognizes that he's coming to the end of the road, and that it's, this is a foregone conclusion. Yeah, and even the even his the the look of Jesse James, his his outfit and his hair and stuff. They, it seems like they they replicate that in Assassination of Jesse James. There's a there's a few other there's a few other scenes. Uh, that are, I think, very clear nods. Oh yeah, the one that you already mentioned with the, with the balladeer, you know, uh, singing singing the song in the saloon. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so it's yeah, it's kind of like a, it, it's kind of like, a rough draft of what, the story would become. So, um, 
So, you know, it, it, it has some interesting touches to it. Um, well, also from this same era, right around the same period, 1950, we have the Kansas Raiders starring Audie Murphy, a movie I hadn't even heard of until yesterday where somebody mentioned it on Twitter. They said, how come you haven't done any Audie Murphy episodes? And I said, oh, well, I'm doing a giant Jesse James episode tomorrow. And he said, well, have you seen Kansas Raiders? And I was like, shit, I've no, I have not. And so I popped it in last night and had, took a crack at it. And it's got, you know, babyface Tony Curtis in it. And I, something tells me that Walter Hill saw this one as well. Because like in Long Riders, you have one of these great handkerchief fights where two guys bite on a handkerchief, grab a knife, and, and get down to it. I was like, all right, well, there's a, a good solid chance that a, a, a baby-faced young Walter Hill saw this while he was uh, getting to know Westerns as a, as a young boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I was actually going to bring up the same thing. Uh, uh, yeah, this, this one's a lot of fun. It's basically about Jesse's time in, uh, with Quantrell's Raiders. We have Brian Donlevy back again as the villain, um, and uh, yeah, it, and so it climaxes with the uh, with the uh, what does it climax? See, I watched Dark Command also last night, and that's uh, the same basic uh, <laughs> same story. The Kansas Raiders the ends with um, with Quantrill coming out, you know, blind yeah. and pulling his guns and letting himself get mowed down. Of course, he's being played by like a seventy year old man, whereas Quantrill in real life was dead by twenty seven. So. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of issues. Uh, they're all they're all wearing like uh, cartridge cartridge belts and stuff. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know about a decade too early and everything. But it's a it's a fun western. Um, Jesse James never had any kind of uh, compunction or or uh, about killing as he does in the movie. Uh, but they do they do portray the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, right? And it's more of a it's more of like just a, a gunfight, a big gunfight and then there's a few ladies say like crying like oh but um yeah, it's, it's not really yeah, the it's not like a bloodthirsty massacre but you mentioned dark command and i didn't want to move too far ahead without giving a shot to that but i've never seen dark command but from 1940 but it was directed by raul walsh a director that i'm always trying to find a way to uh celebrate more frequently but this guy i mean he started out as an actor in the teens he plays john wilkes booth in birth of a nation and kills uh, abraham lincoln eventually lost an eye in this crazy jackrabbit freak accident became a really good director and did movies like the roaring 20s and white heat and uh like uh, high sierra and they 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 drive by night i mean just he's fucking awesome but uh, how is dark command overall uh it's decent it's not great um it it has some good touches here and there uh john wayne basically they they uh, they changed the name, so it's not it's no longer Quantrill. It's now Cantrell, so with a C instead of a Q. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's got you know Claire uh, Claire Trevor in it. So so just reuni- reuniting them from Stagecoach, which had been a hit the yeah. Pr- previous year. Yeah, and so um, and then it's just fun to see John Wayne with uh, with Roy Rogers. John Wayne he never joins up with the Gorillas. He becomes the Marshal. He wins. He wins an election as the marshal against uh, the Quantrill surrogate, and Roy Rogers gets caught up with the Raiders, and then it ends with the um, with the uh, raid on Lawrence, Kansas, the big action climax. Uh, but in this, the Bushwhackers are all wearing like their Confederate grays. They're not wearing. They're not wearing <laughs> wearing their Bushwhacker outfits. Um, so uh, you know, it's it's decent. It's worth a watch. 
but it's it's not amazing. Also, it's Walsh based- directed like 150 fucking movies, and that's no exaggeration. He directed tons of movies. So even if you love his movies, it's hard to consider yourself an expert because it takes a long-ass time. to. Hunt. It's like, yeah. he's like He's one of those guys like Michael Curtiz where it's just like, wow, like how many of these movies do I need to see before I feel like I actually have like a, a, like a, a firm grasp on his career, but I'm always chipping away at his movies. It's solid, but it's it's not exceptional. It's no gentleman, uh, Jim. Yeah, it is one one of the things is it's based on a book by uh, the same guy who wrote um, uh, the book uh, that Law and Order was based off. Of. Okay, so so you know, not, Law not, and Order, not the TV show, but the Western that we talked about in our previous episode. Yes, Western that we did. Yeah, yes, good good to clarify that. Yes, the the fictionalization of Wyatt Earp, which is one of my favorite westerns. So. Uh, so you know it's interesting because of that, and but it's it's you know, uh, yeah. I guess we we could have almost divided up um, uh, a different episode just to talk about movies that portray the uh, the Confederate bushwhackers because uh, it's almost a topic unto itself. Absolutely, because there are the shitloads of movies that dive into that. Well, just move to move things along. We also have the true story of Jesse James from 1957 from none other than Nicholas Ray, a director who also I don't celebrate nearly frequently enough on this podcast. He obviously did movies like Johnny Guitar and Rebel Without a Cause and In a Lonely Place. He's one of one of the directors of the 1950s. But like a lot of those guys in the 50s, he could be hit and miss. And I don't think the true story of Jesse James ranks amongst Nicholas Ray's finest movies, but it's one of those things where I'm a completionist, and if I like a director, I like to know all the peaks and valleys of what they did. But here we have Robert Wagner and Jeffrey Hunter. And I, th- I probably lean toward Tyrone Power and Henry Fonda when it comes to kind of like classic Hollywood portrayals of those characters. But as I mentioned before, it does include the scene from the 1939 movie of the horse stunt, which is... I don't even know if I've ever even, if there's another example of that in film history where 20 years later they just say fuck it we're gonna take a stunt from this movie because obviously this is a chance this is an opportunity to try and remake this is a, a Hollywood remake trying to exploit a previous hit and see if they can do it again but in CinemaScope and I guess to what degree do you think this movie is successful at recapturing the 1939 kind of flavor? Not very successful. Oh. Just as we're before, I forget uh, uh, when we're talking about horse stunts. In Dark Command, they have a similar stunt where a horse goes off of a cliff into into some water. Except it's a few horses with a stagecoach attached. Oh geez, I don't I, I don't know if it's as far down, but I remember watching that and I'm like. Jesus Christ, that's even... <laughs> yeah, like what maniac did they impressive. pay $10 to do that stunt? I mean, when you see the shit that like Akima Kanut and his son used to do, like whether you're talking about Stagecoach or you're talking about like Ben-Hur, it's just fucking insane the risks they would take messing around with these crazy-ass, wild, unpredictable, strong, fucking heavy animals. But they just... I guess you got to really love horses to get good at that stuff. But I, guess, I mean, yeah, yeah it just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lost art form in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, the, I I honestly think the best things about this movie come from the they're recycled from the '39 version. So the horse stunt, that beautiful shot uh, where Jesse is walking on the top of the train, and you see it's he's in it's a, silhouette. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. We should have mentioned that earlier. It's a stunning shot yeah. from the 1939 movie. Yeah, and you see and you see all the people in the actual train itself. Like yeah, it's, it's all, all lit from within. Warm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, this one is another one that's clearly shot in Southern California. Doesn't look doesn't look like Missouri. Uh, um, 
And uh, the problem is, uh, this movie was Nicholas Ray did want to um, he did want to tell a more true version of the Jesse James story, uh, but the studio was not interested in that, and they basically he didn't have creative control, so they wanted a remake of the '39 version because it was such a huge hit, and like you said, they recycle scenes from it. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of just there's a lot of strange things that they that it just yeah they have these weird like there's a flashback structure that I think he was doing to try to give it a sort of Citizen Kane absolutely like this is a story but, from different points of view and they kind of kept some of it but the studio restructured it sequentially as much as they could get away with with the, and still have it make sense. But you can tell there's a war in terms of the overall structure uh, with the, within the movie. Yeah, and the, those transitions where they have these like shots of like smoke with like pink and green light to show that it's a flashback. I think that was imposed upon him. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's really not... Uh, it's not great. It's definitely not Johnny Guitar. Um, and uh, it's sort of, it, it, you know, it, it's just sort of unnecessary because the other one exists and it doesn't really add a whole lot to it. There's um, one moment, though, that struck me that caught my guard during the great, um, you know, Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota raid. There's a scene where I'd always. I guess like the, the official history books of film history always say that prior to Bonnie and Clyde, part of the production code was that you couldn't show a guy pulling a trigger and having the gun shooting and hitting the target in the same shot. There had to be a cut separating that point of impact. And Arthur Penn, had, there's a great shot in Bonnie and Clyde where somebody puts a gun up to the, a, a glass window out of a car and shoots someone in the face. You see the blood come out. Yeah. There are shots in this battle where you see somebody shoot someone down so I think sometimes it's always good not to make really sweeping, hardcore statements about film history because you can always find exceptions to that rule if you dig hard enough. So as a historian, I was interested to see those shots. But in terms of all the movies that we saw in preparation for this episode, this one excited me the least. Yeah, yeah. It's um, – yeah, that whole thing about the, the not being able to show the shooter and the person in the same – uh, I think that's something that that has been built up over time. There's plenty of examples, even in television westerns, of people getting shot with the gun in the same shot. I mean, um, so that becomes a thing where it's like, ooh, the spaghetti westerns did it because they didn't know they weren't supposed to. But that's not really. Uh, I, I I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. I, yeah. I've seen numerous examples of yeah, it. Film, but, I think just film buffs like to have these. I don't know. Yeah, like kind of myths you know, they can cling to. Yeah, but uh, so yeah, this one is um, it's it's fine. It's not unwatchable. It's not it, it's entertaining enough. Um, it, you know, it has some funny scenes. The the scene with the with the poor widow and uh, you know Cole Younger played by the skipper. Um, Do you uh, think this movie would have been more interesting if Nicholas Ray had his way and got to cast Elvis in it? Um. Like what if they yeah, had a, what if they had a few, what if they had a few songs in there? Elvis. We're gonna win that race. Like you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they could have changed the whole tone. I would have rather seen it with Elvis. Yeah, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely not the true story of Jesse James. It 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 just repeats a lot of the same things from the other one. Um, uh, 
it uh, they have very spe- like his mother very specifically stating um, we never owned any slaves, which as I already told you is not true. Um, it uh, they changed. I, th- I I think maybe it was legal at the time because the Pinkertons still were a thing. They changed Pinkertons to the Remingtons, the Remington Detective Agency, um, and they retained that in this one because that's in the '39 version. So there's just weird things that that got left over from that one and into this one that are unnecessary changes and the whole thing of Jesse kind of getting out of control. It doesn't really add anything that wasn't already in the in the original one. So. Um, yeah, it's just yet another example of an unnecessary remake. Like you know, we've got the Lion King coming out next week, and everybody's saying, "Oh, it's the exact same fucking movie, but with photorealistic special effects, which looks really weird because the animals are singing songs, but they look like actual lions." So it's like <laughs> just a remake that didn't need to happen, but it'll probably make a billion dollars because you know Hollywood wouldn't make it otherwise. But yeah, they they are fond of doing remakes. But probably the strangest movie that I saw in preparation for this episode. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but in my my in I got a little excited when I started doing my homework and I hunted down Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter from nineteen sixty six. Have you had a chance to see this little unique cultural oddity? This is the most authentic of the Jesse James. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, they found a they found a secret uh, diary, and they. Um, I watched this when I was a kid uh, or a teenager, so I don't have much memory of it. I watched it. I watched this and um, and Billy the Kid meets Dracula. So I think on the same day, both made by the same director, William yeah. Bodine, and this is—I mean, as a fan of history, this was the last movie in his career, but his career consisted of. 350 feature films that we know of because he also would direct under other names but this is a guy who was not afraid of work he made a lot of movies i don't know if any of them are actually good but i, w- I was just it's such a bananas concept jesse james meets frankenstein's daughter and basically because the american southwest has a lot of dry weather and a lot of lightning you have frankenstein's daughter has moved to the american southwest to continue her experiments and Jesse James, uh, his buddy Hank, this big, giant, like tank-like guy, gets wounded. They take him to Frankenstein's house to get seek medical attention, and his buddy ends up getting kind of sucked into these medical experiments. And it's just as ridiculous as it sounds. But I, I, I just figured, you know what? 
Uh, it, was, it was in for a penny, in for a pound. I'm going to watch it because it's got Jesse James's name in the title. So I'm glad. I'm glad I saw it. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I remember is like I think. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think in some of like the Frankenstein's equipment, they have this helmet, and it's very clearly a World War II like. <laughs> American helmet that's been painted or yeah, something. Yeah, there, there are a lot of scraps from other sets. Yeah. But one thing, <laughs> another piece of uh, weird historical information is that uh, Estelita Rodriguez, who played Consuela in Rio Bravo, she's in this, and she sadly died the following year at age 37. But she plays the uh, the wife of the like innkeeper, tavern keeper in Rio Bravo. But she's you know small part, but she's fantastic in that. But she does appear in this as well. She did a lot of westerns. Ah, I see, I see. Well, you know, um, I, I don't remember liking it very much when I saw it as a teenager, but that might change if I give it a rewatch. Um, I could tell you, I, I probably it's probably not the worst Jesse James movie, so I'll, I'll save that for a little bit and later. This, actually, it's got <laughs> Sam Fuller beat on uh, Total Shooting Days. They shot this movie in eight days. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> in, uh, they, they weren't fucking about. All right, well, let's get into one of the big ones. The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid from 1972. They came riding out of the West like outlaws, and they were the greatest. This is the story of how Cole Younger and Jesse James joined forces for the Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid. Biggest bank, West Mississippi, Northfield, Minnesota. Starring Cliff Robertson as Cole Younger. Co-starring Robert Duvall as Jesse James. What were they really like? Cole couldn't resist gadgets and mechanical marvels. He even wore a bullet-retarding vest. Let's see a place called the North! Jesse had visions and deep hatreds. A place called... Northfield. Amen! years, Pinkerton and his railroad detectives and all the forces of law and order hunted them like animals. Now they had come to Northfield, Minnesota, a town as strange to them as they were to it. It's all everybody's doing nowadays. It's our national sport. Our national sport, gentlemen, is shooting and always will be. Time came for the great raid. The bank was full of money, but it wasn't that easy to get it out. Hold it. We're just making a withdrawal. Tell him to open it. The time lock is set. That isn't gonna work. Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid. Written and directed by none other than Philip Kaufman, who obviously did things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Right Stuff, and he's a, you know, he's a major director, and this is early in his career. 
got a huge cast, including Robert Duvall. This comes from that uh, that the era that we always seem to get to in all these episodes where we get to the the really dirty, grimy, kind of mean and nasty early 70s westerns. And this is one of those movies. So well, what, are your, what are your feelings on this one? Uh, I, I really like this one a lot. I, I, I find this one really entertaining, really creative, really weird. Um, he takes certain facts uh, and just kind of mixes them up and has a, 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 a very absurdist tone to it. So I actually enjoy this one a lot. This one, uh, this might be my second favorite Jesse James movie. Nice. <laughs> Um, it's not perfect. Uh, it's a little too clever for its own good. Um, I think the music is a little too, it, the music is telling you that it's, it's, it's a little too wacky. It, it's gilding the lily in terms of the absurdity of it. I think the I music is the only really silly scene that I, that are kind of lost me was the baseball scene where he almost becomes like a Robert Altman movie. And I'm like, all right, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it, this is like this is that era, so it makes sense that you would get a little weird, a little wacky. But it's kind of taken me out of the rest of the movie, which I was really enjoying. Yeah, it goes on, it goes on a little long, um, but yeah, I, but I think the music is. I, I have the same problem with Missouri Breaks, which, which is another sort of like uh, strange, somewhat surreal, absurdist western um, of, from the seventies, but yeah, like uh, music, another Arthur Penn. Yeah, but the music kind of like lets you in, like, you know, isn't this isn't this wacky? And it's like, yeah, I think you would have done better if you didn't you didn't go that route. But um, I like this one has like a it has a, almost a homemade quality. I know I, I kind of criticized the uh, I shot Jesse James for looking somewhat cheap. For me, on this one, it, it it's kind of partly an asset. It, there's it's part of the film's charm like a lot of it looks like they just went to it someplace and just started shooting there with very little like set dressing and like stuff. the little hot springs area where they're hanging out they're all like buck ass naked getting clean but i was like all right that place looks like a fucking real like hot spring that where outlaws would chill and hang out yeah and that's actually somewhat based on reality jesse james got injured in the war and he actually went out to um uh paso robos california to recover at hot springs that his family owned. So I think that was a little bit, a little nod. It's, it's one of those where they kind of switch all the history around, but, um, but you can tell that there was a certain amount of research that they did. And then they just kind of mixed it up and did what they wanted. But, um, the opening is also interesting because, uh, as you probably know, um, Philip Kaufman was going to direct, uh, outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> and he got basically, Kicked, got off, kicked off the film by Clint Eastwood so he could direct it. I mean, I like the Outlaw Josie Wells, but I think that I think Clint Eastwood's direction is always a little bit too. I don't know. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I won't get too much into that. But the opening well, I th- of this, I agree. Clint Eastwood is not Sergio Leone. He's not Bud Bedecker. He's not Anthony Mann. He's not like one of the great directors of westerns. But of the westerns that he has directed, I think Outlaw Josie Wales might be my. F- favorite. I mean, I like High Plains Drifter and I like Unforgiven and he obviously, he's done, he's directed a lot of movies, but of the Westerns he's directed, I think Outlaw Josie Wales is the one that I lean to, but I agree he, he's not in the pantheon of, he's in the, obviously in the pantheon of great Western icons he's just not in the pantheon of great Western directors. Yeah, you yeah you can't you can't do Sergio Leone shots on a Don Don Siegel 
schedule. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but, uh, but you could see that same kind of sense of humor uh, from from this one retained in the outlaw Josie Wells to a certain extent, a lot of the absurdity of it. Um, uh, but also that opening, that opening where he joins the Bushwhackers in outlaw Josie Wales, and it's sort of this montage of all these different things. Uh, it's really close to to the opening of this one where you have Paul Freeze the the as the narrator who did you know the the voiceover for the haunted mansion at Disneyland and stuff. Uh, you know, narrating what's going on. So there's a there's a big similarity there. Um, I think that um, I really I really enjoy Robert Duvall as Fuck Jesse yeah. James. One of the best Jesse James. And he's mean uh, as a goddamn snake in this. He is just this savage. Is, yeah, this is the first one. This is really the one because I know Sam Fuller says he didn't like Jesse James. I don't think I shot Jesse James is that unsympathetic to him. He doesn't Jesse James doesn't come off as particularly bad. He just kind of seems like he, I don't know. There's not really a whole lot to his character in I shot Jesse James. This is kind of the first time where it's like, oh no, Jesse James is a piece of shit. Yeah, and and it, if you're it, a Yankee, it, even if you're just like an old lady, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a Yankee sympathizer. There's a very good chance he's going to put a bullet in you, and or even if he just is in a bad mood or just feels like it, like he, he's not not a heroic white hat kind of cowboy in this at all. Not only is he not that, he's a, he's an idiot. He's portraying, you know, he. So it's it's interesting too. I mean, a lot of it is a little on the nose. So the first thing is that he's talking him and him and his brother are sitting in a two seat outhouse taking a shit and uh and he's talking about uh like I don't think I ever robbed an honest man or whatever and I mean it's pretty clear that like you know oh you know as he's saying this he's full of shit like it's a very you know there's a lot of those things that maybe are a little little on the nose but it's a very clever movie so he he finds Cole Younger's plans to rob the Northfield bank even though they're going to get amnesty or, or, and then the amnesty, they don't get it. And then so, but Cole is going to stop him. And so there's this whole thing and it's a funny push and pull between Cole Younger trying to, trying to work things out. Jesse James coming and screwing everything up for them. And that's kind of the pull of the movie. Like Cole Younger is the one that gets everyone to put their money in the bank and Cole Younger is the one that, you know, so yeah, it's, it's this just, great elaborate scam where they're basically trying to act as if the best place you can put your money is in this bank because they want basically want to get the bank nice and full before they rob it. And so you, you see it, it does have at least a little bit more I kind of like, I guess, nuance to the to the planning as they're as they're leading up to that. Um, oh, but, but one thing this, I did like about this and that was just a really dark, evil moment is when after the the robbery takes place and they're looking for him. The they find just some random guys hanging out at a whorehouse, and they just get hanged, just like yeah, on the suspicion yeah. that maybe perhaps they had something to do with the robbery. It's like what the fuck? Y'all just found us like four random dudes at a whorehouse and just strung them up just because you're in the mood for a little bloodshed. I mean that that was a really dark, ruthless moment. Yeah, it's just like it just there. It's it's basically like a thirty second Oxbow incident. Yeah, <laughs> and then when you have this posse that's looking for Jesse James and the Youngers, they get in a fight with another posse, and they're like, "Wait a second! Oh, y'all are looking for him too!" But they're having this huge like pitched battle in the woods, shooting at each other, and 
they're on the same fucking side. Like that stuff I found to be yeah. particularly well done. And I love, and I also just love, um, I think the guy's name is Dana Elkar. Yeah. He's yeah. The he plays Alan, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I just find him so funny. His delivery is so hilarious. After they, after they realize that they're shooting their own people, he goes, he goes to his friend, like, well, they weren't any match for us. He's so, <laughs> he's so proud. And then with with uh, with Royal Dano as the crazy old Norwegian guy, and and they're ju- he's just like, oh, he's harmless, you know, and he carry around <laughs> carry around rocks in your pockets to throw at him. Like it's just, I find that stuff so hilarious. So, so many scenes in this movie are so Where funny to me. Where did the square head that- kind of uh, negative uh, kind of uh, stereotype kind of come from? I mean, what what does square head even mean? It's actually based on what people perceived as the shape of Norwegian people's heads. They thought they had a square shaped head. <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. And, and that's the thing that does play out in a lot of the movies that they do, they do portray, uh, the fact that, you know, there's a lot of like Norwegians, even in I think in the true story of Jesse James. I don't know. Do they portray that in the uh, 39 version? I can't remember. I can't remember. What's when they, when you're watching a lot of these back to back, it's hard to remember some of the specific details. Yeah, especially when they're remakes. But yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So I really enjoy this one. I love all the character actors: Matt Clark, Luke Askew, R. R. G. Armstrong. Um, um, R. G. Armstrong's that, always good. He makes every western better. Yeah, exactly, um, and just the and just a lot of the weird touches with the gypsy stuff, and uh, um, well, also we're just getting into the much more racy, scandalous side of seventies filmmaking. Like when one of the earliest scenes, they use this unbelievably pretty buck-ass naked prostitute just hanging out in a window as bait to lure these guys in. I was like, whoa, okay, we are no longer in the era of Henry King and Fritz Lang. We are in the fucking seventies, and girls are taking their clothes off. Yeah, and that's another thing, and uh, which is funny because this is, it's kind of par for the course. We saw a, a hint of it in Doc, like when you take these these mythological figures of the old west, and then you uh, try to cut them down to size. And so in this movie, Jesse James is hinted that he's you know this gay guy who does you know what I mean? Like he yeah, doesn't like he's got an aversion to women. women. Yeah, that's what they say. They have him escaping in a dress. Uh, so he was doing a lot of what Sam Fuller was uh, was thinking. I don't know if they have him escape in a dress just as a um, sort of as a sort of funny reference to the idea that Jefferson Davis escaped in a dress, which is not actually true. Um, but it's a common theme in the revisionist westerns of having the characters uh, having men dressed up in dresses. It's in Missouri Breaks. It's in the it's in the screenplay, the original screenplay of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, it Dead Man has it. Just revisionist westerns. They love to put dudes in dresses. <laughs> uh, well, speaking but, uh, of attire, the next one on our list might have the coolest costumes of any western I've ever seen. I don't know how historically accurate they are, but Long Riders from 1980. These guys look so fucking cool. And this uh, is this is one of my particular favorites. And the opening scene alone, just hearing that ride cooter music and watching them ride along in a field together, it just puts the world's biggest smile on my face every time I see it. 
And I think it's a safe bet that this is probably a lot of people's favorite Jesse James movie because it has this interesting gimmick of having real brothers playing all the various brothers. So you've got David Carradine, Keith Carradine, Robert Carradine, James Keach, Stacey Keach, Dennis Quaid, Randy Quaid, and you even got Nicholas and Christopher Guest as the Ford boys. But I know this is a Tony Stella favorite who's one of our most loyal listeners and contributors, but what does the great David Lambert think of The Long Riders? They were nine men. They were four families of brothers. They rode together from Missouri to Minnesota and from Texas to Tennessee. They were the most famous outlaw heroes of the West. They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story, and it's as close to the truth as legends can ever be. Now you don't give us no trouble, mister. I want your sons, Mr. Samuel. What do you want them for? For robbing banks and trains, ma'am. What do you think your chances are of bringing them in? It's an amazingly stupid question. Wait for them to come out. People say they got one of the youngers. People say they got the wrong younger. You men did an excellent job of making heroes out of every one of those gentlemen. I think I'll write me a book. Make myself even more famous than I am. You ever been alone? Excuse me, miss. I was wondering if you cared to dance. I'd be delighted. Coming back for you. We're gonna be meeting up real soon. They got a real fat bank up there. Scouted it out myself. Northfield. You open that safe, mister, you hear? The picket had told us he might be coming. You're robbing the bank! David. Keith and Robert Carradine as Cole, Jim, and Bobby Unger. James and Stacy Keach as Jesse and Frank James. Dennis and Randy Quaid as Clell and Ed Miller. Christopher and Nicholas Guest as the Ford brothers. The Long Riders. I I really enjoy The Long Riders. Uh, I think that if someone wants to get a kind of an idea of the historical Jesse James, you wouldn't do bad if you wanted to. If you you know cinematically. Uh, if you watch Ride with the Devil, even though it doesn't actually have Jesse James in it, if you watch The Long Riders, and if you watch Assassination of Jesse James, um, this condenses a lot of the era where, you know, the actual bank robbing stuff. You don't have to get into, uh, you don't have to get to his origin, you know, what's motivating him and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, the action scenes are great. The look of it's great. The music is is excellent um i have issues with it though <laughs> i don't want to break anyone's hearts no no i mean, uh, this, I mean the hell I mean, are they, I we're, we're talking I about think, enough westerns here where we're gonna be saying positive things about enough of them where everybody's gonna get a, li a little happiness in some way shape or form so go to it i think that um uh 
like the great Northfield, Minnesota raid, Cole Younger is really the, um, the guy that you like, who is probably the most interesting. Um, yeah, well, it's just how, how can David Carradine not be interesting? Even when he's in the worst movie ever made, like The Warrior and The Sorcerer, he's still amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what he, just, he's, he's, you can't take your eyes off him. And he's got some of the best scenes and the best lines. And he's got that great relationship with, um, oh, I'm totally blanking on her name, uh, Pamela Reed as the Belle Shirley star, who's absolutely yeah. sexy beyond words in this. So he's definitely got the most meat to his role. Yeah. My issue is that one, I don't think that James Keach makes for a very good Jesse James. Uh, I think that he's really boring in the role. Um, Imagine if you'd had Robert Duvall in there and somehow Robert Duvall has some, some brother as cool as Stacy Keach. <laughs> yes. So, and, and I, and uh, from my research, they, I, the, the Keaches uh, were involved in the script and they'd written a play that was a musical before this about Jesse James. Did you read that? <laughs> I did, I did. Yeah, because it, yeah. it's like a, like a nine or ten year like gestation period bringing this to the screen. But this idea of having the brothers, it, it's it's funny how like all the the Carradines and the Keaches really wanted to make this movie with with actual brothers, but it took a long fucking time to make it happen. Yeah, so I don't think that James Keach is really very good in the role. I think he's boring, but I also think the script doesn't give him a lot to do. I think this. I think the. My issue with it is I, I find it really enjoyable. I love the action scenes. I love the look of it. I'm not sure what insight it has about Jesse James. I don't have any concept of what Jesse James's character is in the movie. He's just sort of like this laconic. I mean, that, so, that whole like laconic like Walter Hill, man of action, man of few words thing works when you have a charismatic actor who can pull that off. Like if you've got Charles Bronson and hard times. Yeah. Uh, but here I just don't, I'm not sure what he is. Like he's just, he gets mad at the beginning about the shooting in the bank, but then I don't know. How would, how do you describe his character? It's, I think it's movie? a very fair point because his best scene early on is when he kicks Dennis Quaid, Ed Miller out of the gang for basically losing his fucking shit and just laying waste to people during the middle of this robbery. He's like, I'm not going to ride with you anymore. But beyond that, you have a few scenes where James Keach is, you know, hanging out with his wife, but it's the least meaty part. Like Keith Carradine, I think, has a much more interesting role as Jim Younger. In particular, there's one scene where he's riding through the woods with his cousin, and they bump into Pinkerton's, and it just turns into this really intense, kick-ass, very bloody, very abrupt shootout. Or like you have uh, Keith Carradine's character is constantly trying to steal Dennis Quaid's girl, and he's like, "Man, you don't want to be with him. He's no good." Like I, I, I really okay. enjoy, I really enjoy Keith Carradine's role in this quite a bit. I think yeah, he absolutely he's nails it. Carradine's actually the Carradines, all of them really do bring it. Uh, but um, but yeah, just James Keach is kind of the whole at the center of the movie. And uh, I just, I don't think that the script really, I don't know. I, it's, I, it's kind of, I'm kind of like, what's the thesis of this movie, you know? Well, my just, one major grievance toward it is that structurally he didn't, Walter Hill didn't quite figure out what to do with the end. He, it ends very abruptly, and it, but it also at the same time kind of just like feels like all the air just kind of comes out of the balloon. You're like, wait, where's your... Like your climax is this kind of this enormous, fucking amazing shootout, 
And it's just, it's one of the, it's like a Sam Peckinpah level, like Wild Bunch level shootout. People getting shot through the face and like horses jumping through glass windows. It's just bananas. And then the rest of the movie is kind of like, it doesn't know emotionally how to wrap things up. So I find the death of Jesse yeah, James in it to be underwhelming compared to the other movies. It, it almost feels that they needed to develop, to develop the relationship between Jesse, the conflict between Jesse and Cole Younger. And it's not very developed in the movie. It just kind of comes up. There's a little bit, but just kind of comes up in the end where he's like, I get to see you run. But it's like, there's not much there. And it sort of almost feels that they needed to develop that and then just end it right after the the, the parting of the ways, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's your emotional peak of the movie where you've got the youngers who have just been shot to fucking pieces, but they're still alive, just lying there coughing up blood, and the Jameses decide to, to ride on without them. And that is your your emotional peak. The, sadly, the, the killing by Bob Ford is one of the least impactful scenes in the movie because you just ne- you have one decent scene with the Fords early on when they're trying to join the gang and it's kind of unsuccessful and all the the, uh, the James and Youngers are kind of laughing at these that these kids who think they're cool because they've robbed one bank. But I think it, it's, yeah. I think it's a flawed film. But it, goddamn, it's so much fun to fucking watch that I have it's, a. Like, I'm being hard on it, but it is a movie that I do enjoy watching. It's really well directed. You got James Remar as Sam Starr as like this crazy kind of like half Indian with a knife who has the handkerchief battle with David Carradine, and I love it. I wrote down the uh, the, the dialogue. Um, David Carradine says, "What are we fighting over?" And his girlfriend says, "Nothing. You yeah. both ain't already had." He says, "Doesn't yeah, seem to make yeah. too much sense, it has, does it?" <laughs> and I love, I love the way he delivers that line. Yeah, it has it has really good touches like that throughout, and it's also one that is sort of like. There's a little bit of demythologizing. They're very, you know, it's a very Peck and Paul-ish sort of like these are just these guys that that do this shit and whether or not you, you know what I mean? And and there's there and and one thing that's good about it is that it portrays the Pinkertons as not trying to blow up his their mother and you know what I mean? Yeah, they're just uh, incompetent, but and like kind of yeah. and making mistakes. Yeah, so they're so so that stuff's good. And then it also has a lot of nods to previous movies. Uh, some of the dialogue where. Robert Carradine is robbing the train. Like the idea that they would ride next to a train and jump on it, which they would never do. But it's that classic Western trope when they say, what are you trying, what are you aiming to do? And he says, I'm not aiming to do nothing. I'm doing it. Would directly from the 39 film, the knife fight, as you said, from Kansas Raiders, them jumping through the window during the Northfield uh, raid, which didn't, you know, didn't happen. But, you know, yeah, they said they do that stunt. They train the horses over and over and over again without the glass and just doing that shot over and over and over again, riding through that store, then out the other side. And then surprise, surprise, on the day of the shoot, they added the glass and the horses were like, what the fuck? But the, by that point, they were so like well trained yeah. to go through it. They just kind of blindly followed it. But I found an interesting quote by Walter Hill about the making of the movie. And he said uh, his code for the film was, quote, to keep the jokes funny and the bullets real, it's about moral choices. I think people who object to violence shouldn't go to the movies. I, it almost feels like a non sequitur saying that, but I almost feel like people who object to humor and violence shouldn't go to the movies because it seems like the people who object to it the most are just like they're kind of missing the whole point that like they think somehow that all this is meant to be taken perhaps a little too seriously. And if people take themselves too seriously, maybe they shouldn't watch The Long Riders. But man, I just think yeah. The Long Riders. It's it's one of Walter Hill's most entertaining. I mean, Forty Eight Hours is absolutely deliriously entertaining. Hard Times is deliriously entertaining, but Long Riders is definitely in the mix as one of his most solid achievements. Did you uh, 
Did you get a chance to watch that uh, that gunfight from that movie, Revenge of the Wild Bunch? I, or I, I, also- I'm embarrassed. To me. You sent me that link, and I totally forgot to uh, to watch that shootout. But what's the gist of that scene? Oh, okay. It, well, it's a it's this. 70s western it's one of the worst westerns i've ever watched in my life it's so boring and stupid uh royal dano is also in that one but anyway there's this big gunfight and it's kind of a riff on the opening of the wild bunch um huge squibs tons of slow motion at one point they bring out a cannon they're shooting cannons throwing dynamite and stuff anyway um it it is so similar to, in many ways, to the Long Riders gunfight that it's worth seeing um, just because of that. And I was always like, this, these look so similar. Anyway, I looked up the director of it, a guy named Paul Hunt, and apparently he was a camera operator or worked on the Long Riders in some nice, capacity. Nice, gotcha. I don't know if he showed it to Walter Hill. Um, and Walter Hill was like, oh, wow, very interesting. But he's got his but fingerprints, clearly. Yeah, my friend uploaded that scene, and it keeps getting taken down, so he makes it a private link. But I'm going to try to get him to uh, to uh, make it make it open. So yeah, I don't know if you could provide a link. I want everyone to see it. The scene is, in many ways, terrible. Like, the editing, it'll it'll like, it'll like show a guy, like, shoot a pistol, and then something will explode like a, like it's getting hit by dynamite. Gotcha. Clearly, it was a different thing, but it's like still, everything's a watermelon being shot by a shotgun. It's a yeah, but it's just an amazing scene. Just the biggest squibs you'll ever watch. A guy gets shot in the same like wound like twice. twice. <laughs> so it's really it's really worth seeing. So right, uh, I will definitely watch it. Oh, I also want to give one final shout out to this movie to Harry Carey Jr., who appears in a great scene where there's a robbery taking place. But because Harry Carey Jr. is a Southern sympathizer, he ends up bonding with the gang who's who's robbing them then and there. But I, I thought that scene was particularly well done. But Harry Carey Jr. obviously is a member of Western royalty and a million John Ford films, and oh, uh, yeah. it's just cool seeing. I, I like I love seeing all the interconnectivity in these various Western family trees. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's always good when a when an old timer like that shows up. So do 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 do. Let's continue. So you've got a few cultural oddities that you want to bring up before we get to the uh, the next uh, the next flicks on our list. Yeah, there were a couple Jesse James made-for-TV movies uh, in the 80s. Um, uh, one of them, is, I think it's called The Last Days of Jesse, or Last Days of Frank and Jesse. Um, and it stars Chris Christopherson as Jesse James and uh, Johnny Cash as Frank James. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in many ways, it's very similar to The Assassination of Jesse James uh, because it kind of his final days um and so it touches upon a lot of things similar things one of the weird pieces of casting is that um you know they have to get all their country you know other, uh other, other buddies in, yeah yeah so Wait, david James allen co whiskey head ryan i'm looking at it right here <laughs> yeah david allen co's in it um um uh willie nelson uh plays uh uh what's his name uh I'm blanking. Hang on, let me. I'm, he I'm, plays I'm, a Confederate I'm, guy. I'm clicking on court f- full game. full cast. Let's see where is oh General Joe Shelby. Yeah, Joe Shelby. Yeah, right. Uh, and Joe Shelby, he's an interesting historical footnote. People should look him up. He's uh, he was a Confederate, but 
He's also one of the first people to um, hire a black guy uh, for support a black guy for political office or something to that effect. I can't remember, but um, you know, history is more complex than. Well, everybody likes to paint it all as like, oh, these people are have like you know total moral certainty, and these people are all bad, and it's like no, people have interesting contradictions, and that's what makes history fun to sink your teeth into is that it's complicated as fucking hell, and it's absolutely and it's it's into it's a, you could spend, you could spend your whole life just studying civil war and like the the period right after, and never have a firm grasp on it. I mean, my my, my when I was at UVA. The, one of the most popular classes there was a Civil War class, and this teacher devoted like 50 years of his career just to studying the Civil War, and he every day would come into class like he had just like discovered the topic for the first time. He was so excited, and he yeah. just was so <laughs> fired up, and he just he was absolutely riveted by every little detail of it, and it was just for him it was an inexhaustible topic. Yeah, it was one of those things, and as someone who studies history and all that, you know, or you you start to you know, you start to go, they would never do that, or that wasn't, no, and then you read something that completely throws your whole concept of what, you know, what the reality was into whack, so, uh, so yeah, that's always, that's always fascinating. I am almost certain that, now the book, The Assassination of Jesse James, came out in 1983, I believe, and this movie came out in 1986, I'm almost certain these people read that book, because there are lines of dialogue in this movie that are exact from the book that later pop up in the film Assassination gotcha. of James, specifically where Bob Ford says, I want you to examine my grit and intelligence. And then Jesse James says, I don't care who rides with me. I never have. That's why they call me gregarious. I don't know if there's that's like taken down in some kind of transcript somewhere, like some historical document that they looked at. But I'm feeling that they just completely Stole lifted it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, the thing that's interesting about this is uh, June Carter Cash plays their mother. <laughs> so she plays the mother. I'm sure she of was Johnny like, "Thanks, Cash, guys." Her husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. And as a historical footnote, just as as we're you know getting into some Oedipal stuff here. Um, Jesse James's mother was named Zerelda. All right. Uh, Jesse James married his first cousin, and his wife was also named Zerelda because he was she was named after his mother. Oh so, wow! Wow. So just just a thing to touch upon. <laughs> just a historical tidbit that's interesting. Very nice. But, well, you know, that's uh, what they call them, kissing cousins. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this one is not great. It's a TV movie, but it's fun to see them in it. It's actually surprisingly more accurate than most Jesse James movies. I would almost put it right. Um, I might put it under assassination of Jesse James in terms of accuracy. Um, it gets a little wacky where Frank James goes to Creed, Colorado and, um, actually witnesses the murder of Bob Ford, which is ridiculous. So how, how are Johnny Cash's um, acting chops? He's fine. He's not great, but he's fine. He just, he has that voice and, uh, he may be a little wooden, a little stilted, but he's good. There's a he made a movie early in his career called The Door to Door Killer. Have you ever seen that? I have not. No, it's a weird. He goes and serenades people before killing them. It's pretty <laughs> weird, but he's decent in it. Uh, and then he made that movie, what a gunfight with um, Kirk Douglas. 
It says so, here, yeah, he's got 29 acting credits. So, yeah, he's got, he's got a bunch of TV shows and things like that. But, yeah, so he, he, he at least wasn't afraid to hop. He's even on an episode of Columbo. So, he, yeah, a gunfight, 1971. He plays Abe Cross. Yeah, and then, um, oh, just a historical tidbit about Robert Ford, it's, it, his, his murder. Um, it, there's a theory that a guy named Soapy Smith, who was a crazy con artist, he's, he appears in the TV show Deadwood. Um, he actually was the one that convinced Ed O'Kelly to uh, murder Robert Ford because Robert Ford and him were kind of feuding over who was going to be the head of the underworld in Creed, Colorado. Gotcha. Anyway, so if you go back to I Shot Jesse James, Soapy Smith is in it as the nice old prospector who teams up with Robert Ford. <laughs> so just another weird, just another ahistorical detail there. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, so that one's fine. Um, it's not amazing, but it, it, it's, it's decent. The worst Jesse James movie, I think, is called Frank and Jesse, and it was made for HBO. Rob Lowe plays Jesse James, um, and uh, um, Bill Paxton uh, plays Frank James. It was not made in the 80s. I think I said yeah, that 1995. earlier. I'm looking at here. Frank and Jesse, 1995, from director Robert yeah. Boris. He wrote it as well. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> if you want to see the worst gunfights ever, watch this movie. It's just people just standing in the street, just firing guns, <laughs> like with no cover. They're just literally just standing, firing. Got into musician their water. Randy Travis is Cole Younger. Yes, yeah. Uh, it has Lucas Q in it, and so Who's he's always. Awesome. I, I always love him and everything. I, he's in like you know like. Cool Hand Luke, obviously, but he's just one of those guys who's always popping up in movies. I guess he was in the Great Minnesota, uh, when we, the one we already talked about. Um, yes, yes, yeah. He's yes. got like the mangled face, like the mangled he, lip, and he's always covering up. Yeah, he plays uh, he plays Jim Younger in that, and that's a touch that they always want to include because he got shot through the cheek, and you can see that in the Long Riders. Um, in that movie, he's been shot in the face, but before the Northfield raid. And he's uh, the villain and the warrior and the sorceress going up against David Carradine. The reason I keep mentioning that movie is because right now I'm preparing a video about my favorite uh, 1980s fantasy movies. And so I'm watching, oh. I'm watching all these really obscure and frankly just a lot of them are just unwatchable 80s fantasy movies. But I was watching, I was like, oh my God, that's Lucas Q. <laughs> so playing, playing the villain. So yeah, this one is just really, just, just terrible. Completely throws all history out, out the window. And it's just, you don't really, the characterizations are really bad. Uh, Bill Paxton is good. Rob Lowe is not. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, ridiculous scenes like Jesse James' wife kills, like, the son of Alan Pinkerton in one scene. And Alan Pinkerton gets robbed by them. And he's, he's played by the, I can't, I can't remember the guy's name, but the the annoying reporter guy from Die Hard and the annoying dude from Ghostbusters oh, yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's just that guy until the end of time. That redheaded dude. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, this this is the worst Jesse James movie I think that I've seen. Uh, just incompetent and ridiculous. During the murders, the but scene in, where in a world <laughs> where Jesse James meets the daughter of Frank meets Frankenstein's daughter exists, <laughs> that's saying something. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I have to rewatch that one. I might, <laughs> but. But uh, in this one, uh, Alexis Arquette plays, I think, Charlie Ford, not Robert Ford. I don't, I don't remember. But um, in the scene where they're going to kill Jesse James, Jesse James realizes it and takes a fork and throws it into uh, Alexis Arquette's chest. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's a... <laughs> and then they tell him that 
if he uh, if he's killed, they'll let they'll give amnesty to Frank James, and so Jesse James allows them to shoot him in the back like ten times. So it's an absolutely absurd movie, uh, really poorly made, uh, but uh, you know it, it might be fun to watch just to laugh at it. But, Fair enough. But yeah, I just wanted to touch upon that one because that's that is the. That's the low point of the movies that I've watched for this. Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about a movie that does not include Jesse James, but does a great job of showing what it must have been like to be a young Jesse James. And you, I, I watched this for the first time at your urging, Ride with the Devil, the Ang Lee film from 1999. It's funny, it, it blows my mind that I didn't see, did not see this when it came out, but I was because I was a fourth year in college, I was movie crazy. I, mean, I was basically waking up, and I was all I would do all day, every day, is I would smoke weed from... The moment I got up to the moment to sleep, and I would watch six to ten movies just in a row, like at, in the theater, on laserdisc, on DVD, VHS. I was just, I was, my diet for movies was just off the charts. But the big reason I didn't go see this in the theater was when I was watching the trailer. As soon as I saw that it had Skeet Ulrich in it, and that he was trying to do something <laughs> resembling a Southern accent, I was like, yeah. Like, yes. it, it was just it's like we prefer to solve our own problem it was just it was some line that, uh, it just it gave me such like a just like an aversion to the movie overall that i couldn't bring myself to see it but having watched it for this i am glad that i've seen it now because it does have a lot of really really good things in it and also it has something you would never in a million years now see in a hollywood movie you got jeffrey wright in there playing a black man Fighting on the side of the South, which we're going to talk about like people with interesting contradictions. It's like, well, Jesus Christ, there's no bigger contradiction than that character. And I thought Jeffrey Wright did a really, really good job. I think Tobey Maguire does a good job. I like Jewel in this quite a bit. So I am glad that I finally had a chance to, uh, to see it. Yeah, this, I mean, most people didn't see this. It came and went in the theaters. Like, it was like, it was just a blip. I don't think it but made any... It's on Criterion any- now. Clearly somebody likes it. Oh, yeah, well... Me. So, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I really like this one a lot. I mean, um, there, there are some things about it that are, that are a little iffy, you know, there, there are some lulls. You probably want to focus more on the bushwhacking and a little bit less of, you know, them hiding out in the cave and, you know, some of the domestic stuff is not as, not as interesting. Um, but overall, yeah, as a film that really captures the contradictions of the Civil War, um, this one is is really one of the best. And in terms of the look of it, the dialogue, the historical detail, um, outside of a few things here and there, it's it is widely considered probably the most authentic um, Civil War film. I'll say this for the for the young ladies out there. If you want to see a lot of young, beautiful, pretty boys who are actually are as pretty as girls, wear it with long hair going into battle. This is like the Citizen Kane of pretty boys and long hair <laughs> movies yes. that I've ever and seen. Where I was just like, like, there's not a there's not an unattractive person in this entire movie. It's like, oh, that's a male model. Oh, that's a male model. That's a male model. And it just I was absolutely cackling wildly with glee probably no more so than uh oh, what's that fucking uh guy who plays like kind of the total psycho who um oh, i'm totally blanking I, I, he's an oh, actor i totally despise John, John Rice Davies? exactly like he actually is pretty good in this but in most movies and shows i just want to put a shotgun in his mouth and just blow the top oh. of his head off but i actually oh, did kind of like him in this in this one too 
but it works. You know? Yeah, it's like, well, you dislike him as a character, but I liked his intensity and I liked like how evil he was and I liked his ferocity. Like, I feel like he had this weird kind of devilish intensity, but when it comes to him portraying like, you know, long haired, beautiful boys in movies, like this is when this is like peak Jonathan Reese Myers <laughs> in, in his career. Oh, um, he's so effeminate too. Like he just has like this, like, well, I mean, obviously the long hair and he just has those thick, lips yeah but just the way he like like moves when he like shoots people and stuff and that's how i had my hair when i was like 18 19 years old i had hair past my shoulders totally straight i I thought i was the most beautiful thing that ever lived i thought i was thor but uh yeah then then like my genetics turned against me and all fell out in fistfuls so when i make fun of pretty boy sometimes it's because i recognize uh that that's what i wanted to be secretly when i was like 18 years old (laughs) i'm in the same boat i'm in the same boat but uh yeah, so this one is like, um, and and it's one of the probably things too because there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance to like, you watch you're like oh Confederate bushwhackers these guys are the badasses and when you watch Outlaw Josie Wales when they have um, uh, Bloody Bill Anderson he's this middle aged bearded rough gruff guy and in reality these guys were young, like I said Jesse James was 16 years old they'd wear their hair long yeah they wore these hats with these big Plumes of feathers. Southern, there was Southern dandies in a lot of ways. Like Southerners, like you know, they love their long hair, they love their long sideburns, they love their beards, they love their colorful outfits, like color, and they love their accents. Like so, I think this definitely shows a lot of that where they really were leaning into their flamboyant side. Yeah, and they would have these shirts with these embroidered roses and stuff that they had would have their mothers stitch for them, um, uh, or you know, or their young wives. And so, yeah, they they definitely. Um, they definitely, uh, yeah, were Southern dandies. And a lot of the Old West is actually like that. I mean, you have to remember it's still, um, you know, a Victorian era. People liked color. They liked things. They, they, they liked to be gaudy. and They would spend their money on nice clothes and stuff like that. So we had this idea that everyone walked around looking like hobos. But uh, it's not really the case in a, in a, lot, of, a lot of circumstances. But the other thing is that, yeah, it's a bunch of pretty boys. Jonathan Brandis. Uh, it's got, I think, that guy from the, what is he, from the Sandlot, I think. Uh, you know, it's got Jim Caviezel in there, who's another, I mean, he does quite literally Jesus Christ himself in there. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, he, he's, he's one of the only ones that actually is, like, a little bit gruffer and is maybe more convincing as a badass. But that's kind of the point of it. You know what I mean? It's just that these guys are are just these these young men just like thrust into a thing that they probably don't fully understand and they're just going going around committing atrocities and uh, and it's just a funny thing like later on when Toby Maguire's you know gonna sleep with Jewel and she says have you ever been with a woman and he's like girl I've killed 15 men <laughs> <You know? laughs> Just, yeah, but he's very innocent in other respects. Yeah, but yeah, Jewel, I kind of missed the whole Jewel. I remember when she was like this huge rock star like in the late 90s, and I never even, I don't think I've ever even heard a song by her. So I kind of never got to like enjoy the whole Jewel like experience. But I have to admit, she was pretty damn good in this. I, I thought she was one of the better ingredients in the movie. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's really good in it. And, and uh, yeah, just the complexity of it. And yes, the idea of Jeffrey Wright as this slave who is no uh, no longer a slave but he's fighting for the confederacy and 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 that sounds absurd 
But in real life, there was a guy named um, John Noland, and he was a black uh, bushwhacker who fought for Quantrill and and did participate in the Lawrence, Kansas massacre. So, um, so yeah, he it's it's not something that they just pulled out of their ass. I mean, he, he when they would have their bushwhacker reunions, he would show up. So. Well, this movie, I think, one of his best, one of his greatest strengths is showing just how confusing and divided the loyalties became. Like Toby Maguire's father is pro union, and Toby Maguire is fighting for the Bushwhackers, but they're still close. But his father, who's German, just thinks, "Oh, well, this is not our affair. We should kind of like stay out of it." But Toby Maguire's character has grown up in America, so he feels compelled. And then when he tries to do the right thing by freeing. Um, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, who's a Union soldier, and as like a basically as a, a show of good faith, one of the first things he does, he goes back into town and murders Tommy McGuire's father. So just just how like the loyalties were so divided, and every, it was everything was so c- conflicted. Like the fog of war could not have been hazier in terms of where people stood. We're quite literally brother versus brother, neighbor versus neighbor, father versus son. It was just a fucking hellacious time, and I think people. Liked people who don't like to do their homework, people who don't like to read, who find it easier to buy into a narrative, like a simple narrative that can be said in a few sentences, they tend to overlook just how fucking complicated the Civil War could be, could, could be at times. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, uh, interview uh, with Jeffrey Wright. I think he's like talking to Sway in the morning or something, uh, and he's comparing his character to uh, the character of Django from Django Unchained. and. Uh, it's pretty interesting his his point of view on it, um, but uh, uh, but yeah, it's it 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 has its issues. Uh, it is a lot of lot of pretty boys, but that's kind of the point of it. Um, yeah, to Skeet Ulrich, if they'd cast any actor alive, yeah. it probably would have been a better idea than Skeet Ulrich. But he was big <laughs> because of Scream. Scream made him for a hot second this kind of sort of movie star. So I get why he got cast because he would give you, you know, ticket sales, etc. But he's just fucking awful in this. Well, yeah. Well, luckily he goes away. <laughs> he goes away pretty quickly. Yeah, they but, hack yeah. off his arm and he fucking dies. So I was like, all right, that's fine. All right, okay. It made the scene a little easier to bear. But the yeah, but. The the gunfights are all pretty good. I love the guy getting shot to the cheek again. I love him drinking the water and it falls out the sides. Uh, and, or Jonathan uh, Rhys Meyers shooting at Tobey Maguire, at, like trying to shoot him in the back when he's fighting on the same side in the same battle. So it's like even in the middle of a pitched battle when you're fighting against the Union, you've got your own buddies trying to shoot you in the back. So I, I, that that I thought was particularly well done as well. Yeah, and the raid on Lawrence, Kansas is the most accurate portrayed. <laughs> I mean, that's maybe not hard considering the other movies, but they really do show it. And if you get the director's cut, it's a little bit longer of things happening in Lawrence, Kansas, and a few other scenes. Um, that it, you know, it's it's worth seeing if you if you liked it, but uh, if you like the film overall, um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's. It's good, and and it really is. Uh, the dialogue is great. The look of it's great. Um, the the period detail is some of the best that's ever been in any any Civil War movie, any Western, because you could consider it a Western still. Yeah, and twenty years later, it's the kind of movie that Hollywood would never dream of making. At least right now, in this political moment, there's not a single actor or director out there who would even br- consider doing a movie that was would would look at. 
pro-South characters in a remotely positive light, but it just shows how much Hollywood has changed in the 20-year interim where, you know, Once Upon a Time, Gone with the Wind could become the world's most watched movie, the highest grossing movie of all time if you adjust for inflation. And it's just funny how we're living in a very strange political time where people really are really rigid in their ideology and there's a total lack of nuance and you can totally utterly revile and despise the institution of slavery while the still time still at the same time tell a story about characters in that era who lived in that region and not have to be a complete total blanket condemnation yeah like when tarantino made django unchained i thought one of the ballsiest choices in that whole movie was having samuel l jackson as the character of steven who's like oh, this yeah. machiavellian like <laughs> tom hagen style consigliere who is far worse than a lot of like the white slavers that you see in the movie and i was like god damn like tarantino gets it like there you can have nuance and complexity and uh, paradoxes to these characters and there are just so few filmmakers who are willing to do that these days yeah and you know Django Unchained is a, is a movie that doesn't have a whole lot of nuance but I do love that movie still it's so entertaining but his that character is amazing and I would love to see just a whole character just about that guy I mean I mean a whole movie just about that character um, and like when Jamie Foxx is like trying to sell the idea of, of being a black slaver the way he talks to the slaves when he's trying to stay in disguise oh, when they're yeah. infiltrating the plantation, it's like, God damn, like Jamie Foxx is really fucking going for it. And I was just blown away by just how savage a persona he adopts for the sake of that ruse. Yeah, and um, but also going back to Ride with the Devil, it does have a sympathetic uh, aspect to these characters, but at the same time, it doesn't gloss over the atrocities committed on both sides, but it has them playing with these, like playing cards with these scalps of black people and and a Dutchman. That might be a little on the nose, but but uh, you know they're playing with these scalps. And Jeffrey Wright sees you know this pile and Lawrence this pile of dead bodies of these black people that have been murdered and and he very nearly gets murdered in the middle of battles by people on his own side and they're like and like he, people yeah. have constantly had to remind people that he's actually on their yeah it, and it, even. Even, you know, Tobey Maguire's character, you know, says, you know, uh, a, uh, I think he, I believe he says the M word, <laughs> but he says, uh, you know, one of them with a gun is, is still an agitating thing to me or whatever he says, something to that effect. And even Jules' character is like, what's he doing in here? Why is he inside? You know, why isn't he out plowing a field? So even, even the most sympathetic characters don't, uh. You know, yeah, they're not they're not immune to uh, or they're not uh they're not innocent of a little uh full-fledged racism on their part. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright, my hat goes off to him for just being willing to play this role because I imagine it must have been really uncomfortable on set at times with some of the dialogue, some of the scenes. But Jeffrey Wright, fucking world-class actor and he's got balls of steel and I, I commend him for for playing this role. Yeah, and in even the way he talks, I know he did an interview where he was like he he studied cuz I I've got an old record somewhere and it's these uh, slaves talking about their experiences. And he was like, he had, he had to tone it down the dialect and he does a, he d strikes a good balance to where it, it has that sort of dialect without becoming this thing that it doesn't become a stereotype, like a loathsome stereotype. Whereas they listen Skeet, to the actual yeah, historical Skeet Ulrich probably could have used some of those dialogue, the dialogue or dialect kind of uh, <laughs> coaching to, to help him on his way. But let's yeah. talk about the big dog, the 10 million pound gorilla in the room. 
the movie that will probably go down in history as the best movie we'll ever see on this topic. And a movie that I think is totally ignored by far too many people. It's criminally underseen. When I watched it when it first came out, I kind of disregarded it and just forgot all about it. And then revisiting it for this episode, I was totally, completely blown away by this I won't even hesitate to use the word. It's a modern masterpiece that I think is totally neglected and ignored. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford from 2007 from director Andrew Dominic. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. He installed himself in a rocking chair and smoked a cigar down in the evenings as his wife wiped her pink hands on an apron and reported happily on their two children. His children knew his legs, the sting of his mustache against their cheeks. They didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. He was listed in the city directory as Thomas Howard. And he went everywhere unrecognized and lunched with Kansas City shopkeepers and merchants, calling himself a cattleman or commodities investor. Someone rich and leisured who had the common touch. He had two incompletely healed bullet holes in his chest and another in his thigh. He was missing the nub of his left middle finger and was cautious lest that mutilation be seen. He also had a condition that was referred to as granulated eyelids and it caused him to blink more than usual, as if he found creation slightly more than he could accept. Rooms seemed hotter when he was in them. Rains fell straighter, clocks slowed. Sounds were amplified. He considered himself a Southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. He regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to. He had seen another summer under in Kansas City, Missouri. And on September 5th, in the year 1881, he was 34 years old. Why has this movie just been completely, utterly... Like, I feel like New Country for Old Men and uh, There Will Be Blood came out in the same year, and they're regarded as these, like, beloved classics. Why is this movie not mentioned in the same breath? I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't think it was marketed well. I know that it's one of those things where I think Brad Pitt had the final say, and he's... He was like, you can't change the title. You, you know, you, you can't do. You know, he was like, he kind of stuck it to the studio. Like, this is how it's going to be, and I think they just didn't market it just as a way to get back at him uh, to a certain extent. At the same time, for a lot of people, I believe it's just probably a hard watch. It, it's, well, it's slow and it's beautiful. Hear- it's very yeah. Terrence Malikian, if that's even an adjective, where some people don't like that aesthetic of just, you know, girls spinning around in fields and that sort of thing, which <laughs> Terrence Malik can be guilty of. But well, one of the funny things is that I know that the director, Andrew Dominic, 
showed a cut of the, the this cut of the movie to Terrence Malick, and he Terrence Malick said it's too slow. You need to <laughs> you need to you need to trim some stuff. So even Terrence Malick was like, it's too slow for me. That's a bad uh, sign for at but, least for commercial uh, cinema. But um, people do make the Malick cons- comparisons, and and I think that is that that's definitely an influence. But I think that the big influence is Barry Lyndon. Uh, Ooh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It's more formal. Like, people say Malick's movies are slow, but when you watch a Malick movie, the scenes are fast. It's just that there's so many of them, and it just kind of culminates in these mon- long montages of this and that. And so people get bored. But Malick's movies, the editing is actually like just one thing after another. You know what I mean? So. But this is much more, much slower, more meditative. Um, with you know, with the narration, it, it just has more. It's more formal, so it has. I love the narration. The narration in this is for me maybe the strongest asset. I fucking the the the, the actor. He's not even. A, I was like a, he was like an editor. He's like a really unusual choice to do the voiceover, but he just crushes it and really makes you feel like you're stepping back in time 150 years. From what I have read, I believe that it, his voiceover was the temp track, and then Andrew Dominic just fell in love with it and just kept it. I think they were going to get someone with a more, you know, standard voice for a narrator, like Sam Elliott or Robert Duvall or somebody. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, or Morgan Freeman or something. Yeah, um, but uh, I remember because I remember when the trailer for this came out, the voiceover. Sections of the voiceover were done by uh, either Liam Neeson or a Liam Neeson sound-alike. So I don't know. Yeah, look up the trailer and and uh, let me know if you if that sounds like like that original trailer. It, it sounds like Liam Neeson. So I don't know if they were planning on actually having a real name actor narrating it, and then he just decided. But it's kind of a movie that I'd seen. Um, uh, Andrew Dominic's first film, Chopper. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that in the theater at the New Art in L.A. Yeah, and I wasn't a big fan of it. It's a little show-offy and hyper-caffeinated. I've never been able to get into it. So when I saw this one, it was just like a revelation because it's a complete like 180. Like It's not anything like Chopper. You, there's nothing in, in that movie that I think would give you any idea that this would be the type of film that he would make. And um, his follow-up, was not great. <laughs> what, now what's the? Because it's another Brad Pitt movie that comes after this. What 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 was the one he did right after? It was uh, Killing Them Softly. Gotcha. Which I have not seen. So that's I was actually really excited to see it after revisiting the assassination of Jesse James. It, it does it not it doesn't compare favorably. It has good stuff in it, but um, he just does stuff that's so on the nose. Like he has these guys shooting up heroin. And the song choice is Heroin by the Velvet Underground. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Subtle. (laughs) He tries to make these, like, very, like, very on the nose uh, things about politics and capitalism. And it just, it's it's film student level and a disappointment after this. It has good stuff, but 
It's also sometimes all you need is a great book to, to pull a director's best work out because obviously they, it seems like they did their best job possible to really be as faithful as humanly possible. Obviously, that's why Brad Pitt went to war over the, the name of the movie. And I know they showed a four-hour cut of it at, I believe, the Venice International Film Festival. And that just seems like you're, you're just inviting disaster if you're showing a four-hour meditative, contemplative, <laughs> zen-like Western to people. Like they're gonna just, you're just not being realistic about the constraints of commercial cinema and when you're making a movie at that point even if you've got this ridiculously good cast i mean we mentioned brad pitt we got mary louise parker you've got casey affleck sam rockwell jeremy renner sam shepherd i mean the cast is they're so natural and they're having so much fun with the dialogue and they have such a great rapport i mean early on when they're planning that first robbery you just fall in love with like just seeing those guys hanging out together i just i couldn't believe how how great the cast was when they're interacting with each other, especially Paul Schneider. I think as Dick Little, who does a really good job. Yeah, and then you also have pretty good character actors. You know, you got Ted Levine and and uh, um, why can't I think of his name? The um, um, uh, he did the sequel to Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, and he's in the ter- he's in from Dust Till Dawn and Kill Bill and what's his name anyway. Oh, um, uh, Mike Parks. Yes, Michael Parks. Yes. Um, yeah. So you get you even get those guys kind of on the fringes of it, just popping up, which is there. You know, it's always good to see. No, if uh, you can get Michael Parks in your movie, granted, may he rest in peace. We did a big episode about him after after he passed away a couple of years ago. But he was uh, one of the all time great character actors. I'm a massive fan. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so. So. Yeah. I mean. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't think the movie's perfect. There's some things here and there. I think that he has these scenes where they where he plays up the awkwardness um, in these like dialogue scenes that should really kind of give you this feeling of um, isolation and persecution that Robert Ford feels and. That Is really it a heresy for me to admit that I think Brad Pitt actually might be the weakest ingredient in here, that I think he actually gets outperformed by everyone else in the cast in a big way and that he kind of can't keep up with the rest of them? I would say that that is not heresy. I think it's one of those things where, I mean, to to harken back to uh, Barry Lyndon, it's almost... Yeah, yeah. He absolutely yeah, did almost, not belong in that movie. <laughs> but, well, but the thing is, I think he's perfect in Barry Lyndon cause, because he's this dopey sort of uh, full of himself. You know, like... I think but that, the Irish that, act, the Irish accent kind of comes and goes depending upon his mood. And I was like, all right, either do it or don't, but like that, stop that, switching back and forth. That that is true, but I think that I think that you know I think he embodies the character uh, in a way that is beyond his talent because he just is that Barry Lyndon character. Like in my opinion, I love him in that movie, um, but I think it's partially not because of his talent. And I think that I think that Brad Pitt in, is similar in a way because he's this big celebrity, and so he kind of embodies this idea of Jesse James because that's who he is. You know what I mean? He, but he, he went through this period where I, and I, I have nothing but respect and admiration for a lot of the films that he's uh, been able to help kind of breathe into life. But when he went through this period where he did this and then Glorious Bastards and then the uh, Twelve Years a Slave, where he kind of developed this shtick of this like Southern boy, but he would kind of use it again and again and again. And I started to notice like certain quirks and qualities that he's putting into all these characters. And I wish they're just perhaps like 
more variety in terms of his interpretations of some of these different characters where it just it feels like an act whereas sam rockwell i really believe him as charlie ford and i really believe even jeremy renner is like a total bostonian i believe jeremy renner in this movie when he just goes on that murderous rampage and just like attacks the household and all yeah. hell breaks loose and so well, there's an uh, authenticity to a lot of the other roles that i really had no trouble believing whatsoever but especially paul schneider that weird scene where he's trying to seduce that girl who's taking a dump out in the privy it's like all right i, I believe this scene it's <laughs> doing it yeah. so well um uh no i know what you're saying and when i first watched the movie i i had the issues with brad pitt's performance Sometimes the dialogue, which is mostly straight from the book, doesn't translate as well when it's said out loud. Like when he's like, I will slip that Phil Doodle, like flop on the floor like a fish. And it's like they should have maybe rewrote that. That's kind of a mouthful to try to say naturally. Um, so I know I know what you're saying. I mean, I don't uh, I'd have to look, but he has the distinction of actually being a Missourian playing Jesse James. Gotcha. You know, and that, without him, the movie would not have been made. I mean, like he went to war on behalf of this movie, and like they even did like a, a four another cut that he and Ridley Scott supervised at one point that apparently did not play well. But the movie would have been probably severely truncated and like ruined if not for Brad Pitt stepping in to to go to war on behalf of it. So I, I shouldn't give him too much shit, and he's fine in it. I just when you see like Sam Shepard, who's way too old for his role, but still, but Sam Shepard, he can do that kind of shtick really, really well. And I love his scene between him and um, Casey Affleck, where Casey wants to be his sidekick, and Frank's getting creeped out by him. And yeah. he, he just he yeah. makes me fucking crack up. No, I, I know what you mean. Everyone else is kind of embodying their role, and you're seeing Brad Pitt, and you're like, well, it's Brad Pitt. But I think in a in a certain sense, it it does work for the movie. Because it's not really an exploration of Jesse James so much as it is Robert Ford, um, and uh, so one of the things that about this it, this is easily the most accurate, authentic version of um, uh, a Jesse James film that that has has come out. There's really there are obviously invented things where it's in my mind it's the best kind of historical fiction where there's. There's nothing that directly contradicts any of the known facts. So it follows history, but then it just builds this whole other thing, like thing and motivation and uh, depth and themes. And so, and it does all that without altering what we actually know, the facts that we actually know. And that's really, that's a really a credit to, to the book, uh, which I recommend anyone read it. The movie's very close to it. Uh, the book is just, more so there's just more of it there's more gotcha. of the history Very involved, cool. more of the side side plots the the whole thing it gets a little it gets a little it's it's a very slow movie and and then after Jesse James dies and it gets to the Robert Ford stuff it starts going a little fast i'd love to see the 4 hour cut where we flesh out that Robert Ford stuff but if you do read the book um uh it it has more of that well, but, the best know, stuff after Jesse James is killed, I love how they show that the um, Sam Rockwell character is getting better in his performance over time. And it's almost like the ghost of Jesse James is almost like pointing a finger at Bob Ford through Charlie Ford on stage. And Sam Rockwell, he just does some really eerie, cunning stuff as an actor on stage that just was giving me goosebumps as I was watching it. And I really like Sam Rockwell. I can't even speak Sam Rockwell in this. 
Yeah, and that, that's a good point, too, is that also when you watch the film, the first half of the movie, Jesse James, he's he where like, I mean, this is maybe a little pretentious, but you see Robert Ford and he's wearing these earth tone clothes, these brown suits, stuff. Jesse James is black and white, right? After Robert Ford kills Jesse James, then you, you look at his clothing. He's he kind of adopts that black and white. He's no longer the earth tones. He starts to adopt certain elements of of um, who Jesse James is. And um, a lot of it, a lot of the thematic stuff comes, I mean, most of the thematic stuff comes from straight from the book. And the guy who wrote the book is he's, he's a, he's like a devout Catholic. I think he's like a, per, like a yeah, Ron Hansen permanent deacon. Yeah. And, um, and uh, he, so there's a very interesting aspect to it. There's a certain typology, like, uh, uh, where Jesse James becomes this sort of false, like a false Christ to, you know what I mean? Like there's a very religious tone to Bob Ford is like, you know, instead of having this, instead of like being this church going guy, you know, he's basically picked Jesse James as his Christ and, and yep. like disappointed. Oh, those uh, scenes are so wounding and hysterical and just pitiful when they basically find his stash of Jesse James, like yeah. comic books and books, and they're making fun of his hero worship. And just Casey Affleck, this might be the best acting of his career. He's so undone and so upset to be being made fun of in this moment and trying so hard to be taken seriously as like a hard man. But the, yeah, the, the author of the book said that uh, Casey Affleck said it, he, he says in some ways it feels like he was born to play this role. So obviously the author of the book was very complimentary of Casey Affleck's interpretation of the character. Yeah, I mean, and he looks just like him and uh, uh, just like the real guy too. And uh yeah, he's yeah he he's amazing in the movie, and it's an amazing juggling act because it has so much sympathy for Robert Ford, and it's it, it, it and it is the movie that I shot Jesse James really wanted to be, and um, at the same time, it doesn't. He still manages to be creepy and weird and yeah. awkward, <laughs> absolutely and to, to be to be sympathetic, um, but also like this weird asshole and a lot of it um is uh yeah it's it's a juggling act and yeah he yeah he's amazing at it i mean he's he really is and when you hear that like they were almost going to cast Shia LaBeouf like oh, I would have, I would rather stab up my own eyes and see Shia LaBeouf face in this movie i that, hate Shia LaBeouf that would have been that would have been yeah i don't know a different I, movie it would have been a different movie entirely. It would ruin it for me, absolutely. And there's so much about this movie to love. I mean, obviously, Roger Deakins, one of the greatest directors of photography ever to live, and he's doing some of his finest work here. I mean, there. I feel like there's almost like, there's almost, like people talk about like Stanley Kubrick bros. There's almost like Roger Deakins bros out there now, like on Twitter, who just sit around talking about how much they love Roger Deakins. But it's because he's fucking incredible, and he's obviously done a ton of great stuff for the Coen Brothers. But some of his finest work is on display in this. And then of course you have this eerie, melancholy, beautiful score by Nick Cave, and uh, it's, it's just fantastic. And he makes a, a brief little appearance late in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think this might be Roger Deakins' best work. I couldn't. I mean, it's it's hard to think of something as as gorgeous, and um, yeah, I mean, and uh, that that was the thing too. I, I've read some different interviews. I know that Andrew Dominic is n not a big fan of westerns, 
and when you do watch the movie, it 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 does kind of go against your expectations of a western. I think that's the other reason it didn't do well because you hear assassination of Jesse James, and you're like, oh, it's gonna be like the Long Riders, gunfights, yeah. and you know, or it's gonna be like uh, Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid. It's gonna be like a, like an, an adventure, and then really, it's like this really deep contemplative character study. And it's not a, a, a rouse. It's got one action sequence with the robbery of the train, which doesn't even last very long. And then, of course, you have that crazy shootout with Jeremy Renner where they end up blowing his brains out and kind of sort of burying him in the snow, just kind of kicking snow over his corpse. <laughs> but that scene is just so bananas. The way, like, the way he and Dick Little are like at point-blank range shooting at each other and missing each other and allowing Bob Ford to sneak in and shoot him in the back of the head. But that, that scene is un- unfold so well. And I love the way Sam Rockwell just goes flying out the window. It's like, whoa, but he's just like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like yeah. you, if you're dead asleep and suddenly there's a gunfight in the bedroom, that's yeah. the best thing you could possibly do is just yeah. go leaping out the window into the snow. Yeah. And that's one of the things, uh, cause there's so much great, there's, there, you know, some errors here and there, but so much great historical detail. And, um, so yeah, that, that is how most gunfights played out. Just guys at point blank range, just shooting at each other and missing. But, one of the reasons is the movie doesn't actually portray it as much as what it would be in reality is just that when you're firing these black powder, um, you know, weapons at each other, the whole room would just be smoke. And the reason you'd keep missing is because you wouldn't be able to see anything if you're firing these black powder. I remember your comments on that front about one of our previous episodes when they were robbing the train early on and they're shooting the gun over and over again as they're walking through. I was like, you know what? According to David Lambert, that probably would be a bad idea because you wouldn't be able to see shit as you're trying yes. to rob these people. <laughs> yeah, and that's also a thing. And I don't know; it's a very weird choice. Um, the sound of the guns is so like weak; it's just like a pop. And I don't know if that was—I uh, don't know if they just did that intentionally because that's how it picks up. I'm—I'm I'm not sure, but it's interesting when they fire guns in this movie. It's not a loud, powerful boom. It's just like these little pop guns. So uh, yeah, little uh, firecrackers. I'm not actually sure what 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 the uh, what they were going for there, but I have read interviews, and yeah, one of the movies that they did cite for this uh, as an example of of uh, western and very thematically sim- similar is Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid, um, and it has the same themes of uh, friendship and betrayal and and uh, you know living with killing your friend and all that. But I know that Roger Deakins has cited it, and I know Andrew Dominic cited it. There's like an interview where he's yelling at like his production designer, "No barrels," because he doesn't want he doesn't want it to look like a western. <laughs> so he's like, "No barrels on the set. I don't want any." Also, if you think about like all, the, I mean, when I think of the state of Missouri, I do not think of the West. I mean, I've been to Missouri many times, and it's like for me, you got to be near the Rocky Mountains for it to start feeling and looking like the West. And like even in Colorado, when you're driving through it. The eastern half of Colorado looks a lot like the Midwest. It's just super flat as far as the eye can see. And then yeah. the mountains just kind of like jut out of the ground like fucking teeth. And you're like, wow, all right, now I'm in the fucking West. But yeah, when I think of Missouri, I don't think of the West. But yeah, so it makes sense that you would not make it look and feel like your traditional Western shot on a back lot of Warner Brothers, like, you know, in the late 30s, early yeah. 40s. But talking about the lack of um, commercial success of this movie, it had a budget estimated of $30 million. And it had a lot of delays in its release, and it had a lot of like recutting going on. But total domestic box office in the United States, $3,900,004.982. It's like it lost basically every single dollar that was invested in it. Because, you know, whatever yeah. mark, 
It didn't have a big marketing campaign, but it had to probably be at least a couple million, if not more. It was a complete, total, bubonic plague level commercial failure, like zero audience of any kind. I, I feel if they had put a little bit more marketing in, it might have not recouped everything. But, I mean, it's a movie starring Brad Pitt. It, that I mean, that's just – I just don't think – I just think it got buried. I don't think that they they put any effort into – I mean, that's such a small – such a – small amount you know for the for a film like this to make with a, such a big stars just yeah. absolutely but, yeah uh, i think it's one of those movies and I, I i've been totally completely living and blissfully unaware of how strong this was when this movie came out i was in business school and i think when i first watched it i was actually playing a video game and like watching it like like i had the screen for like, the video game going on one place and I had the movie playing like above i barely i was barely even paying attention to it and i remember thinking at the time oh the music's beautiful and it's got some some cool actors but uh but whatever and then when I revisited uh, just a few weeks ago, I just found myself being completely taken in by its spell and just being completely overwhelmed by the style, the tone, the atmosphere. I absolutely loved it. And I think, yeah, it's a, it is a 21st century Western masterpiece. And there are not, yeah, a, lot I, of, there are not a lot of great Westerns from this decade to boast and brag about. Or at right. least from this century, I should say, not this decade. I think it's the – it's definitely the best – the best Western of the 2000s in my mind. Um, maybe even the 90s. I don't know. I might even prefer it over Unforgiven. Um, so well, I know those well, it's very fresh in my mind right now, so it's very... It's very tempting to say a lot of very pra- like very praiseworthy things about it because when, whenever you kind of make a fresh discovery, you, you can easily get overly excited and say things that you might walk back later on. But right now, if I had to compare it between Unforgiven and – yeah, I, I think in terms of artistic achievement, cinematography, music, editing, writing, I think it's the more profound movie. I really enjoy Unforgiven, but I don't – it's funny. Like I, I love Unforgiven, but it doesn't have the mystery and the depth – of some of the westerns that I really find most fascinating, like I wouldn't put Unforgiven on the level of like one of like Peckinpah's great movies, and so I'd probably be inclined to agree that the assassination of Jesse James is the stronger movie. Yeah, maybe it is the best western of the last fucking thirty years. Who knows? I'd, I'd, have, to, I'd have to think long and hard about maybe that. Maybe even longer because it's Slim Pickens in the in the eighties. Yeah. So, <laughs> so so I would have to I'd have to think. But 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 yeah, I mean I I love it. I mean I get the people that find it boring or. Or or whatever, but but I think it's great, especially as someone who knows the history and stuff and how close it it uh, it follows the the known events and um, and uh, you know outside of a few quibbles, I want to see that four hour cut. I would I'd love for Criterion to get a hold of it and uh, and have that four hour cut. Well, Brad I want Pitt to says it's his favorite movie that he has ever made, and Brad Pitt's worked on some good ones, but uh, it's high praise. So maybe he's just wounded over its lack of performance, and he's kind of going to bat for it. But still, it's, he has said, gone on record that it's his favorite film that he's ever worked on. Yeah, and and another thing that because it's a pretty dour movie. Uh, unlike, I think one of the differences between it and Barry Lyndon is Barry Lyndon always has a sort of dry, ironic humor to it. Oh, and, it's hysterical. I, I laugh like a maniac while watching Barry Lyndon. Yeah, and this one is a little dour, but it still has some really funny scenes. Oh, just uh, the fact that the guy's character's name is Dick Little, but he's like, no, it's L I D D I L. Like that, that alone yeah. <laughs> is pretty goddamn funny. Yeah, Dick Little, Wood Height, uh, uh, 
There was a, one of those trailers where they cut it up. Did, I, did you ever see that one where it was like the gay cut of Assassination of Jesse James? Where it's well, like I don't, I don't think so. Oh, you, you look it up. It's pretty funny the way they use a lot of the awkward scenes and some of the dialogue. You know, you're acting kind of queer and all that stuff. So <laughs> there, there's a lot of material there, and it does it does touch upon some of that that homoeroticism that that was hinted at in. Uh, uh, I shot Jesse James, so you know that's another interesting. Oh, aspect. another person we haven't mentioned yet that deserves totally deserves a shout out is uh, Garrett Dillahunt, who just like well, obviously was oh, doing yeah. uh, like um, Deadwood at the time. He was in season one and season two, but he's a remarkable character actor and was put on this planet to appear in westerns. So yeah, wildly appropriate that he gets to uh, get some screen time in this flick. Yes, and in uh, No Country the same year. So, yeah, yeah, he, uh, he, he's but, awesome. I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah, he's so he's so. Uh, heartbreaking as as ed miller uh but he has so many funny scenes like where dick little's like tell him i went to to kansas or whatever or you know and then jesse james is at the table and bob ford comes out and immediately goes oh yeah dick little had to leave he went to kansas it's just so awkward <laughs> like it's just so <laughs> yeah. unsubtle the way he brings it up and yeah the, the awkward pauses and everything and Sam Rockwell is hilarious in it. I mean, the movie doesn't touch upon, the, in reality, Charlie Ford. One of the reasons he killed himself was he had tuberculosis and a morphine addiction. So the movie doesn't really gotcha. into that. You know, Maybe you know, that would have been too dour even for the assassination of Jesse James. But yeah, it is, it is a grim movie. It's a slow movie, but it's also a beautiful movie. It's a mysterious movie. And I find myself wanting to watch it again right now just to hear the voiceover narration. It's just If you're a fan of narrative and just great writing, God damn, it's well worth And I, I think I might have to add the book to my reading list. Oh, you, yeah, the book is amazing. And uh, yeah, really readable. All Ron Hansen's books are, are pretty good. He did a Billy the Kid one recently. That's not as good as his other, as Desperados or Assassination of Jesse James. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just also a brilliant idea because there's such ambiguity where it's like, where it's like, uh, you know, Jesse James is it, 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 he's courting is he courting this guy to kill him? You know what I mean? You you yep. don't ever fully know it. And like when he looks it, into the the picture that he's hanging, and then he he sees Bob Ford drawing the gun. It's almost like like he's like yearning for this moment because he knows there's kind of nowhere else for his road to go. At least that's like one interpretation of the scene. And it reminds me a little bit of just like Wild Bill Hickok and Deadwood deliberately sitting with his back to the door because he knows his vision's going bad, his world's closing in on him, and it's kind of like almost like it's like like the pressure's too much. Yeah, and he gives him the gun to do it, and he says you're going to break a lot of hearts. So there's just all these all this hinting, and what it what it kind of reminds me of although it's done way better and more subtly in this movie is um, the scene in last temptation of Christ where Jesus is like telling Judas, Hey, you need to betray me. You know, <laughs> it, it sort of has this thing where he's like courting his betrayer. And as that scene is happening, the daughter is out there singing the song, the water is wide and I can't cross over, you know? And that song is, it, it's about a, a love affair that goes that goes wrong that basically goes sour and so it's thematically sort of uh part of that too because it's like this thing where this infatuation obviously this mark david chapman sort of thing um where the, his infatuation goes sour and he decides that he has to kill him but it's also interesting because it's like jesse james has already talked about crossing over to the other side 
seeing death. And so it's like through this betrayal, he's courted this guy. He's courted this guy to betray him so that he can cross, you know, cross over. And yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's 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 a lot there's a lot there to unpack and a lot of ambiguity and it's so it's it's constantly like a, a really fascinating movie and the fact that they were able to and this is credit to the book um, but the fact that they're able to weave such an interesting uh, full take with so much thematic uh, uh, weight to it but still adhere to the known facts is it's yeah it's masterful yeah it's so. quite, a, quite a juggling act well hopefully you and i have struck a mighty blow on the movie's behalf because i feel like this is one of those movies that's screaming for a critical reassessment and it wouldn't surprise me at all if its reputation were to grow as time goes by but i feel like we're starting to knock at the door of a relatively long episode of wrong reel so i might start drawing things uh to a close but any final words on books, movies, legacy, your thoughts, anything you didn't get to say that I didn't ask you about along the way? I'm sure there's so many things, but <laughs> uh, I, I think we've exhausted it. Uh, what, how would, I have a question. How would, you, how would you rank the Jesse James films? You don't have to include the ones that like Ride with the Devil that don't actually feature him. How would you rank? Uh, in terms of my favorites? Ooh. I mean, my least favorite would be the Nicholas Ray. That that's a pretty that's a pretty simple choice. And I'd probably agree with you that I shot Jesse James is not the strongest of the bunch. I just, as such a Samuel Fuller fan, I just have to give it a shout out because it was the beginning of his remarkable career. But I'd also probably put Return of Frank James and just the the uh, the Henry King uh, Jesse James uh, closer to the bottom and to the top. My favorites by far would be Long Riders, The Assassination of Jesse James, and Pro. I think yeah, for me it's pretty much those two neck and neck. I think one's a hell of a lot of fun, and the other is this like enigmatic, mysterious, artfully done film. And so you get a, you get your art house and you get your kick ass like rock'em sock'em shootout film with the great. And so you kind of get b- both both like elements of entertainment that you want. So I'd probably lean toward those two as my favorite. But I definitely had a blast digging my way through all the rest of these. But it's like Kansas Raiders was fine, but I probably won't be revisiting Kansas Raiders anytime soon. I'll probably be leaving alone. Uh, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Great Northfield, <laughs> Minnesota raid. I will, I will definitely be revisiting because I'd never seen that one before either. But yeah, I think for me, it's all about yeah, Long Riders and the assassination of Jesse James. My world is full just knowing that those two movies are out there for Jesse James fans to explore. Yeah, like I would say, if, you, if people are, are interested in, in getting an idea of Jesse James's life cinematically, say start with uh, Ride with the Devil, even though it doesn't feature him, just to get that idea of the bushwhacking era. Go to the Long Riders to get the idea of the actual, you know, the height of them robbing banks and all that. And then uh, assassination of Jesse James for his final days. And uh, that'll, it, that'll give you a nice, somewhat full picture of him. Yeah, like if you take Long Riders and stop it right after they leave the youngers behind and like ignore the last five or ten minutes of the movie and just start the assassination of Jesse James, it kind of picks up and continues the story, like passes the baton perfectly to the next movie. Yeah, exactly. So 
Um, but I, I would rank Assassination of Jesse James at the top. I'd, I'd go Northfield, Minnesota Ray, just because I love weird, off-kilter, uh, 70s westerns with just absurdist elements thrown in. Um, and then I'd probably go Long Riders after that, and then probably the 39 version. And um, I don't know. I might put the Nicholas Ray and the I Shot Jesse James on the same level. I think I Shot Jesse James is more interesting, but I think I probably just enjoyed I, I I found I, I found uh, I, uh, the Nicholas Ray one to be watchable. Okay, so. that's fair. But that so that's how I'd rank them. But anyway, yeah, I would recommend uh, I would definitely recommend to anyone if you do like Assassination of Jesse James, check out the book. Um, it's it's well worth reading. It it complements the movie, um, and uh, it's it's really entertaining, really funny, a lot of great historical detail in there. Well, where can people find you online if they want to gaze upon your lovely erotic art or talk about westerns or, or whatever? What's the best place to hunt you down? Uh, you can go to my Instagram, which is David Lambert Art. Uh, also, my Facebook is David Lambert Art. Uh, I have a Twitter that I think is David Lambert Art, but I barely ever update it or use it. You should log in just to see the reactions to the past episodes. I do, I do tag you and all the uh, the Twitter posts. And of all my social media platforms related to the podcast, the most active and vocal community surrounding the episodes is definitely on Twitter. So you just get a chance to see. Because I always try to forward you some of the best, most interesting reactions. But that way you get a, a full picture of uh, how people are, are, are reacting to and digging some of these Western episodes. Oh, yeah. I appreciate that. I think I, I, think I uh, take too many illicit substances to have Twitter. I think I would... <laughs> I think I'd be canceled before I before yeah, well, I. What you should is just uh, just mute people or just like I mean, a lot of my friends just use Twitter as like a, as a news feed, but they don't say or post anything. They just follow people. They they glance what they want to glance at. But just because um, a lot of our contributors are present on Twitter, they are very supportive of the episodes when they come out. So just be interesting to you. Just to, if you want some feedback on your past Western episodes, it just give you a, a better idea or a clearer picture of how people are responding. Right. Well, that sounds good. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope people enjoy these. Uh, I'd love to do. Well, I'll tell you who the number one fan is of these Western episodes. His name's James Hancock. I fucking love doing these <laughs> episodes. So I'm down to do Western episodes anytime you say. All right. Well, hey, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Coming up in the future, we got Becky Deanna coming back to talk about San Diego Comic Con. We got Mackenzie Lambert coming back to talk about, is it Arnando de, oh, what the hell is it? It's a Spanish language hard director. Oh, I'm totally blank. Arnando de Osorio, I think. Anyway, done a bunch of crazy horror movies, but we got a bunch of interesting stuff on the horizon. We got a King Kong episode. We got some good stuff coming your way, but please remember to like subscribe, all the good stuff, leave a review, etc. If you want some video reviews, you can hunt me down on YouTube, Geeking with James Hancock. And just can't thank you enough for listening. So check out some of these movies, hunt down anything and everything that sounded of interest to you. But I think I've run out of things to say, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this sucker up. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.